All right. Well, thank you, everybody, so much for joining us. It is the 2nd of May uh, 2010. And, of course, as always, a massive thank you to donators, subscribers, and other people who share the good word of philosophy. I hugely, hugely thank you for your enthusiasm and excitement, the emails, the conversations, and the support. It is just a wonderful, wonderful thing to be around such fantastic and amazing people. So uh, that's my brief uh, insight uh, or thank you for today. We will um, not uh, start with a uh, comment from me, uh, which I guess I'm saving from a podcast for a podcast, but instead jump straight into if the people's IEUs have uh, any questions or issues or comments or anything you would like to chat about. You can um, join the show at Freedom Aid Radio in the, in the chat room. You can uh, ping Mr. James P. Uh, in the chat room if you do not have the Skype. And you can um, call 315-876-9705. Or if you have Skype, just let him know. And uh, he will add you for, I think, the price. And the price is a lower back rub. So flex up your hands. So I'm, I'm all ears. If you have comments, issues, or questions, please unmute yourself. And I am happy to hear. I have a question. Sure. Can you hear me okay? I sure can. Great. Um, so this is HKW from uh, the forums. Yes. And um, I have, I'm reading this book um, that you may have read. It's called Self-Therapy, A Step-by-Step Guide to Creating Inner Wholeness Using IFS. Um, uh, that's Internal by, Family Systems. That's the Richard Schwartz stuff. Yeah, it's, this, uh, it's, um, it's written by this guy about the Schwartz stuff. Right, right. I think Mel yeah. Blank talks about him, uh, oh, Mel, Mel Brooks, uh, the power of the Schwartz, uh, I think. So um, that's great. Go on. I know. And, I, sorry, uh, I, haven't re- I haven't read his stuff. I've only read the more technical one, but I haven't read the, um, the self-therapy one. So uh, right. but, uh, I'm, I'm fairly, fairly comfortable with his theories. So go on. Okay. Um, so uh, one of the, the notions that he has uh, early on the book um, is uh, sort of these different qualities that the the true self has, um, and he lists, uh, four of them and, um, three of them I, I recognized right away as, uh, being very reminiscent of the sort of true self that you describe. And then the fourth one was, um, a, uh, d- didn't remind me so much as, as what you were describing. And so I was wondering if I could bring it up and you could tell me whether it, uh, is sort of in line with the way that you think of the true self or, or not? I think that's a, a great question. So please go ahead. Okay. So just really quickly, the, the first three, um, the first one is about uh, the self being connected and feeling naturally close to other people um, and connected to your other parts. Um, the second one is uh, about the self being curious. Um, and uh, the third one is about the self being compassionate and the fourth one, um, I'll just sort of read the section really quick and uh, instead of trying to give my own summary, it says, the self is calm, centered, and grounded. This is especially helpful when you are re- relating to a part that has intense emotions. Intense grief or shame, for example, can be overwhelming if you aren't grounded in the, the self. And protectors will avoid a part that has emotions like this at all costs. But when you are centered in the calmness of self, there is no need to avoid a part with intense affect. You remain in self while the part shows you its pain. The calmness of self supports you through the difficult work. 
of witnessing and healing this part. And that's the end of the section. Um, mm. So take it away. <laughs> take it away. Okay, let's, let's go through these in a list. And I, I think this is really great stuff that you're bringing up. And uh, I'm certainly not going to speak for Dr. Schwartz naturally, um, but I can certainly give you my own uh, perspectives on these. So the first one, if you can just remind me what the first one was. The first one was that the self is connected, uh, specifically um, that it, uh, it naturally feels close to other people and it wants to be connected to your other parts. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I have a trouble... I have trouble with the naturally feel connected to other people because that seems like a bit of a blanket statement to me. Uh, I think that um, uh, I would say that the true self feels open to connection with other people, but I don't believe that it feels naturally connected to other people because that is to imply that only one side of the relationship needs to feel connected in order for that connection to occur. So right. I would say that there's a receptivity Right. To, so to me, it's sort of like if you have a store and it's open for business, then you are open to trade your goods for money or whatever. Right. But that doesn't mean that you're going to just give away your goods to whoever comes into the store. And I think that that standard is, is very important to have. I'm always a little bit concerned. And again, I know we're taking a short phrase, but I'm just giving you my particular thoughts on it. I'm always a little bit concerned when there's a kind of sluttiness to to the true self i find at least my true self is very discriminating you know it's not it's not out there you know in in knee-high spock boots with the fishnet stockings uh, swinging a purse chewing gum and uh, yowling for sailors in the moonlight i mean that's not my true self that's me but not my true self so i'm a little bit i'm always a bit concerned when there's this idea that when you're connected with yourself you're automatically going to be connected with other people because that indicates in a sense that you're broken and everyone else is is available for connection and the only reason they're not connecting is because you're broken and i i'm a bit concerned about the self-esteem implications of that so i would say that when you're connected with yourself your store is open and you are available to trade uh, values so to speak with others but um, in my experience, the majority of people in this world are not traders, but looters, so to speak. And right. so I think it's important to keep that discriminatory uh, aspect of things. So uh, that would be my first uh, thoughts. And, and I don't want this to just be a monologue. I mean, what do you, do you think about that? Oh, man, I totally agree. And I, you know, I hadn't thought of that at first, but I, when I was reading it, I did feel a little bit uncomfortable with the passage. And now I, you, now that you've mentioned that, that's exactly why I felt uncomfortable with it, it's because... Um, it's kind of ridiculous to say that you, there's like this, um, this pure center of yourself that you just need to tap to tap into. And all of a sudden the world turns into uh, sort of butterflies and rainbows. And, <laughs> you yeah. know, it, it's always sort of struck me. Uh, it reminds me, you know, in, in every cheesy, um, science fiction movie and, and, uh, the fifth element with Bruce Willis comes to mind, uh, that there's some, there's some emblem of power, and the end of Indiana Jones is sort of like this too, right? There's some right. item of power, and when you grab it, electricity courses from the sky through you and leaps to everyone next to you, and, and, and there's all of these uh, CGI and, and all of that sort of stuff. And uh, it looks like you're being attacked by some shape-shifting, multidimensional blue snake that's attaching its fangs to everyone around. And that seems to be what, what people think of when they oh, I, I'm finally connected, and, and so I'm going to be so close to other people. And I think it is, it's necessary, but it's certainly not sufficient for intimacy with others that you are close to yourself. 
Um, I just don't think it happens that magically. I think that it is, is in a sense, I mean, I think, I think people swing from isolation to what is, you know, and I use, of course, these terms in an amateur sense, but what technically in psychological terms is called fusion, which is, um, you know, if you've ever known someone like this, it's like, I met this great woman online. She's perfect. She, she gets me. Uh, we're going to move in together. You know, um, uh, I've already got her cat tattooed on my ass. You know, like it's, it's, she's just the perfect person. And it's like their second date. Right. And you're like, whoa, you know, you might want to hit the old brake sleds there a little fella before uh, you end up uh, in the old age home wondering what the hell happened to your life. So uh, I'm, I'm a bit concerned when when people go from isolation to this rampant, almost promiscuous connectivity. I'm a little bit concerned about that. There is a psychological state that seems to be able to be induced either through electrics, uh, through uh, electricity or uh, certain kinds of seizures where people feel a kind of oneness with everything. Um, you know, it's the old joke, you know, <laughs> what is the, uh, what do you say, uh, what does the Buddhist say to the uh, hot dog vendor? Make me one with everything. <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, there is that kind of feeling, and uh, I don't think that's real. Uh, I think that uh, real intimacy is not something that just happens, like you touch someone like this, that idea of instantaneous love, which is um, just wanting to uh, cram the naughty bits together more or less. But there's this idea that you connect with someone and you ah, you kapow. Uh, real intimacy is something that requires a lot of self-honesty, a lot of uh, honesty with the other person. It can be difficult at times. Uh, there are even things in my relationship with my wife I find difficult to share, uh, even now, right, if I'm feeling vulnerable or insecure or something. But I make myself do it because I respect our relationship and uh, it's the foundation of, of what makes it work so well. So I think it's um, it's sort of akin to... Uh, working out, right? You have to go to the gym and it takes a long time and you have to keep working out in order to maintain your health and so on. And that to me is what intimacy is like. It's not this magical electric connection. So uh, that, those are my thoughts about the first one. But let's move on to the second, unless you, you have more to add about that. No, I mean, I, I guess if I go to the barbecue, I won't be showing you my lower back, too, of mis- back, back tattoo of Mr. Whiskers, but um, <laughs> that's, that's okay. I'll well, you, know, that. you know, all that does is make me wonder where the tattoo really is. <laughs> That's all right. Let's not go <laughs> so there. So it's not on your lower back. <laughs> now, as you were talking life. about that, as you were talking about that, it reminded me of the uh, the podcast they did about loneliness recently. I mean, I can I can totally see how someone would uh, sort of read this passage and th- who who has had a sort of lonely existence and think like, ah, oh, I just need to get in touch with my true self. But you know, in reality, it, there are some people that you don't want to be connected to necessarily. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, all you have to do is spend 10 minutes on the Internet to go like, wow, there's a lot of people here I really don't want to be intimate with in any level whatsoever, right? Right. Um, was it you who posted this uh, that, that you felt somewhat anxious about coming to the barbecue? Or uh, I can't remember if it was you or yeah, somebody else. Yeah, that was me. Well, listen, I, I hope you can come. And I mentioned that. I, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised, right? Because the theory is that the, the way that people connect is through shared values and not any shared values, but you know, rational and empirical and philosophical values, that that is what allows for, for people to connect, right? And, uh, so we can only meet in reality. So I think this is not going to be like any social gathering that you've been to before. It is, I mean, I look forward to it, like from the beginning of the year, uh, as I look forward to each of these shows, just because it's so great to be in a group where, um, you know, everybody has rational values. I mean, it is, uh, I, I really think that it's, uh, it's important. I remember the, I think it was the second barbecue. 
uh, a woman came. Uh, she drove for uh, 13 hours, I think, to, and she had social phobia. And it was really, really, really tough for her to, uh, to come up. And, you know, within half an hour of coming, she was relaxed. She was laughing and, and so on. And, and she's been coming up ever since. So, uh, you know, and this is somebody who has, like, social phobia. Uh, and it finds it really, really difficult. And so she did, of course, an amazingly brave thing with that condition. But um, I, I wouldn't underestimate the power of shared rational values in terms of making you feel connected and relaxed. And, you know, the only shame of it, of course, is that it has to end because we all have to get back to our lives. But uh, I just, you know, I, 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 would, I would invite you to try it just because it, I think it will really raise, raise the bar in terms of what the social connection is for you. So that's just my Yeah, I, I, I totally appreciate that. Maybe maybe it doesn't have to end. Like maybe we could start a sort of free igloo colony project. The compound, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. That I mean, they have it in New Hampshire, so it's right. just a little bit colder in Canada. Um, so the the second, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, sorry. So yeah, the second one that's uh, listed on here. Um, if you, I don't know if you still want to go through the rest of them. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, please. The, the second one is that the self is curious and uh, let's see, I don't want to have to read the whole thing. Um, uh, you know, being curious about um, what makes other people tick um, and the inner workings of your mind and um, uh, I think, I mean, I think I get the idea and I mean, I, I, I am definitely a big fan of curiosity but right. I, I would probably, again, we're just going with the words, not with the man's ideas, because this is, you know, this may all be, you know, explained in a different context. But just based upon these words, uh, I'm a big fan of curiosity. But you know what I've never heard a psychologist talk about when they talk about curiosity is the phrase, I wonder if you're evil. Because <laughs> to me, that is part of that is part of curiosity. When you think about uh, people, um, I wonder what your moral standing is. I wonder if you are dishonest. I wonder if you are manipulative. I wonder if you are uh, destructive. I wonder if you are abusive. I wonder what my experience is being around you, if that's really negative and horrible. And so I think curiosity is a great thing. But I've never wanted to be – there was a phrase, and I can't even remember who, who wrote this. I think it, I, I'm sure it was a French philosopher, but I could be wrong um, – where uh, the philosopher said – or the thinker said – Nothing human is alien to me. And that kind of anthropological broad-mindedness, I do not consider uh, a virtue. I do not consider healthy. Uh, I absolutely guarantee you that there are things that are human that are incredibly alien to to any virtuous person, just as virtue is incredibly alien to uh, an immoral person. Um, So, for instance, um, um, let's just talk about this with with, uh, Christina last night as a... I read an article about they've done fMRI scans of uh, people who are, you know, obviously bullies or or cruel people or whatever, sadists perhaps. And they found that when people are shown videos of other people getting pretty drastically hurt, their pleasure center lights up. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched those, you know, funniest uh, home videos. Uh, You know, some there's always, you know, some kid with a tether ball or whatever, and it goes around and you know, wax the dad in the nads or something like that. Right. And uh, I mean, I, I, I literally feel queasy in my <laughs> nether regions <laughs> when I see those. Um, if I see, you know, the old, someone steps on a rake and it goes up and whaps themselves in the face, like it stings. I can't watch those things, you know, where some guy swings out over the um, river and then falls in the rocks. Like I feel it. I feel it in my back. I, I, I tense up like I, I think that my mirror, mirror neurons are perhaps a little overdeveloped that way. 
that I really, um, I, I really feel that uh, in other people. And I think this is one of the reasons why I've never been able to be, be violent or, or never able to, to, to be cruel that way. Um, because I just, I feel so strongly the other person's discomfort. Now, one of my great struggles in life has been to turn that down a little bit, right? Because bad people feel discomfort when you are virtuous. And I've had to turn down other people's discomfort at what I'm doing that's good uh, so that I can, you know, function and, and do, do the right thing. But I feel uh, such a strong uh, sense of empathy and oftentimes too much sympathy when I see, see other people. Um, it's just, I, I literally have to sort of physically brace myself uh, if I know that I'm going to see something cruel. And that's why I gave up seeing violent movies, I don't know, about 15 years ago or whatever. And, uh, and so I guess if you look at the fact that I feel as much, I mean, I wouldn't say, I, I don't know for sure, but if you, you know, there's a scene from Marathon Man, which has haunted me, right? Where uh, Laurence Olivier is playing a, a sadistic dentist who drills through Dustin Hoffman's front tooth. And like, I, I watched that and like, my legs are curled around six times and my toes are going into my heel like some sort of Japanese geisha girl from the 19th century. Like it's, to me, I'm, I'm cringing. I'm, oh, I can't bear it. You know, when my daughter went in for her injections, it's just so I, I feel a great deal of sensitivity uh, towards other people's pain. And so the idea that you could take pleasure out of watching somebody get hurt is is completely unthinkable to me. Like, it, it is complete reversal of, of cause and effect. That is human. Uh, that is alien to me. It doesn't mean I don't understand it at all. Uh, I mean, I've written characters in novels who are sadistic, and I've played um, one of my <laughs> stellar roles in theater school was as Cornwall in King Lear, who has a rather ghastly scene where he gouges out Gluster's eyeballs, um, uh, you know, shouting, out, out, vile jelly. Uh, and so I think I, and I played that, I think at least I got some good reviews fairly convincingly. So I, I can sort of understand it at an abstract level, but I can't even remotely experience it uh, at a physical level. So there are things that I'm curious about, you know, sadism and evil and so on, but they are uh, alien, uh, alien to me. And, uh, you know, when I, as I've been sort of being a parent and seeing people who are harsh or, or cruel or, or even dismissive or, you know, ignoring their, their kids. Um, you know, every single time I go to the playground with Isabella, if there's any kid around, the parents are off texting or on their phones or whatever, and the kids glom onto Isabella and I because I'm down there in the sand pit playing with her, and uh, I end up having to run this little babysitting camp for <laughs> all the time that I'm out there. I can't understand what's more important on the World Wide Web than your child who wants to play with you right there. I mean, there's just things that I don't understand. I'm curious about them, but um, I think that the judgment is too often suspended in that sense. So. Right. I don't have anything to add to that particular one. Um, well, does it does it make any sense? Do you, does it? Um, yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, I I I think I agree with with what you're observing about it so far. Definitely. Thanks. Um, so the third one is that the self is compassionate, and uh, you already talked about that quite a bit. Um, but um, uh, but for the most part, it talks about um, sort of nurturing yourself and your your own parts, and and um, how once the true self nurtures the parts that and that they can sense the compassion. Um, from the self that it uh, they feel safe and cared for and, and want to open up. 
Right. Now, I mean, and that to me is very interesting. That to me is a very interesting distinction. Because my relationship with the aspects of myself uh, is different than my relationships with, with others. Although both are subject to UPB. So I'll sort of just touch on this very briefly because I think it's a, it's a really uh, important, important topic. Uh, and I'm sorry, I've got this Mika system convo that I've just uh, finished doing an introduction to, so I'll try and send that out tonight or tomorrow. But I do not allow the characters in my head to be abusive towards me because that's a UPB thing, right? So you know, now they can say I'm being an idiot and I'm not listening to myself and so on, and that's to me sort of more of a chiding. But they can't, uh, they can't get abusive. I can, you know, they will sometimes swear in frustration or upset. Or anger, but not at me. Okay, so I don't allow that. But at the same time, I don't have a choice about whether or not the people in my head influence me or or have uh, an effect on on my behavior. We're all locked in the same brain, right? So we're all we're all roommates. We're all home all the time. <laughs> we rarely sleep uh, all at once. So so we 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 I I think reasonably have to find a way. To, to get along with the various aspects uh, of myself. And I think that, that uh, Dr. Schwartz would probably agree with that. Mm-hmm. So there's no de-self, right? Now, you can, of course, but, but, but my relationship with other people out in the world is, is different because those relationships are optional, right? So the relationships with myself, I mean, they're sort of optional in that I can always choose to reject and disown and repress and ignore and, and attack, and, but that obviously is not, not going to work, right? Right. Um, like in the same way that I can go walking through the woods, rub myself down with honey glazed marinade and then poke with a sharp stick any grizzly bear I find. I can do that. I just <laughs> would rather not. So with, with myself, uh, I do think that what he's talking about is very important. But that is very different from, uh, from other things. So the aspects of myself, I can have some interaction with. Um, they can't hit me. Um, you know, they, they, and I find that they respond to the rules of no abuse uh, fairly well. But real people in the outside world don't fall into those categories. Those are voluntary relationships. And I also find that the negative or sort of harsh aspects of myself are imprints of other people in the real world. And uh, I found that uh, those imprints of my, uh, of other people who are harsh have become much less harsh now that I don't have abusive people in my life. Uh, it's sort of like, um, uh, it's like a wax impression uh, under a hot sun, right? If, if that wax impression uh, if you've got a, sort of a, a bowl of wax out in the hot sun, you can put an impression in and it's going to sit there, but a couple of hours later it'll be gone because the sun will have softened and melted it. And so what I found was that when I was in contact with harsh or abusive or destructive or dissociated uh, personalities, that it was like continually re-impressing that soft wax with the same imprint and it got deeper and it got stronger and it got more permanent. But when I no longer had those impactful and destructive personalities in my life, things began to soften. Things began to normalize because there wasn't that constant reprovoking. It's like any scab that you don't pick at is going to heal. And destructive personalities for me were picking at the scabs of my soul. And I found that I could not heal while I was in contact with those personalities because there was a constant re-traumatizing uh, of, uh, uh, of my system, so to speak. And so... Um, uh, that to me was distinctly unhealthy and it made my Miko system that much more unbalanced when I was around those personalities. So I found that my Miko system becomes much more conciliatory, much more positive, much more, I mean, still aggressive sometimes and still harsh, but has a lot of great things to say. Uh, but that has diminished 
um, in that I've gotten those destructive re-imprinting personalities out of my head, so to speak. Um, what was it? There was a, uh, a Big Bang Theory recently with Will Wheaton, the guy who was uh, the annoying kid on uh, uh, Star Trek Next Generation. And uh, he was making fun of the, I don't know, Asperger's, the tall, skinny Asperger's guy. And uh, he said, uh, yeah, you know what that means? I'm living rent-free in your head. In other words, I've gotten in your head and I'm messing there and I don't have to do anything. And that's sort of what happens, right? When people are around you, if they're destructive, they end up taking residence in your head, becoming part of your ecosystem, and they get stronger and stronger with every interaction. And uh, that's not something that you can deprogram or manage to me. Uh, without uh, not having those destructive relationships in your life. So that was sort of my experience. But I, I think what happens is uh, psychologists may look at what occurs inside the head and universalize that to to outside, right? So I have to deal with the mom in my head because she's there. And I think they then say, well, because you have to deal with the mom in your head, you have to deal with your mom in the world. But those two things are very separate for me. Right. I do have to deal with the mom in my head because she's there and I'm there and she's not going anywhere. And she also the mom in my head has a great deal of value for me. However, the mom in my life, uh, that's a whole different uh, kettle of fish. Right. So I think it's easy to I think it can be the case that when you only introspect without the, the benefit of philosophy and ethics in UPB, when you only introspect, you can then mistake the necessity of relating to aspects of yourself and then say, well, it, that then extends to, to real people in the real world, the necessity of interacting with them. But the second is, I mean, obviously and, and empirically just not true. So I just wanted to sort of mention that, that aspect of things. I had a, a couple of thoughts about what you just said. Um, yeah, please. So two things that I, I noticed about that was different from what I've read in the book so far, and I haven't read the entire book, so maybe he gets into it later, but, uh, the first thing was that um, it, it seems like if you're going to be sympathetic with your parts that are harmed, then it's um, it's certainly good to sort of listen to them and express sympathy and stuff like that. But if if they were harmed by your environment in the first place, then to be completely sympathetic with them, you sort of have to remove them from that harmful environment um, because otherwise you're just kind of half-assing it. So that, that's sort of how I would interpret what you said about that. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Um, and then the, I also noticed that you talked a lot more about sort of negotiation with the parts rather than just um, focusing on sympathy. I think probably he focuses on sympathy be, at first because it's a good place to start. But uh, I, I think you're, you're probably right that negotiation is, is something that you need to work into the, the game plan eventually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to, to me, the difference is, like, once you've eaten the food, like, let's say you're overweight, so you've eaten excess calories relative to what you burn off, and so the weight is on you, and you have to deal with that weight, and that's an empirical fact and reality. But that's not the same as saying that, it's a, that, that, that then you have to eat more, because that's external things to you, right? So there's stuff that's already part of your system, which is the excess food you've eaten before, or the deficiency ex exercise or both. But then there's the food that's out there, and you have to have a sort of different uh, relationship to those, I think, uh, and stop eating more uh, and then deal with what you've already got. And that, to me, is the, the difference between relationships in the outside world versus the ones that have already imprinted uh, on my mind that I have to, to deal with internally. Right. Um, and there's uh, – so there's one more quality if you feel like uh, talking about it. Uh, I do, yeah, for sure. I find this stuff okay. fantastic, so I, I appreciate oh, you bringing it up. 
I have, I'm happy to hear that. Um, so the, the the fourth and the last one, which is the one that I um, did understood the least, I guess, was that um, the self is a uh, calm and cent- is calm, centered, and grounded. So there's this I, this sort of idea um, in the book that you you want to as much as possible, quote unquote, stay in self, and uh, it's the sort of um, I don't know. It's a little bit Zen-like. It's like this idea that when you're in touch with the true self, that you that things don't bother you. Um, yeah. Uh, that they sort of bounce off of you, and I I really didn't understand that quality. Yeah. Look, I mean, I I think that's a fucking great topic, and I really really appreciate. Uh, I really really appreciate you bringing that up. There is a myth, and I'm I'm going to be unabashedly um, speechy here, and I'll obviously ask you what you think. But there is a very, very powerful myth in society that to not be bothered by uh, immaturity or viciousness or whatever, to rise above it, to take the high road, to not let it bother you, that that is somehow the the mer- the, the meridian of maturity it is the, the highest zen like state where you sort of float in your lotus position above the world like a kite loosed from its moorings float above the world noting with sadness or regret or perhaps uh, the the dishonesty and viciousness and ugliness and violence in the world and uh, you, you know attacks against you you don't let them bother you and to let them bother you is, is somehow uh, immature uh, 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 and uh, it's engagey and and so on and I think that is a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. Uh, and I think it is, is a desperately unhealthy ideal or goal uh, to have. Uh, I've certainly never been able to achieve it. I've never wanted to achieve it. That seems to me to be dissociated and insane and like a ghost among the ruins of evil in the world. That just does not seem to me to be healthy at all. And... <clears throat> The question I always ask when you have an ideal like this that just seems so counterintuitive and counter-rational, and is also not even remotely UPB, um, wh- what does it? Uh, who does it serve? Well, if you can get the most moral and the most intellectually powerful and the best communicators and those who are the most interested in wisdom and truth and philosophy and virtue and goodness and courage and all that and nobility, if you can get those people to not get angry about the evil in the world and not rise up to fight it, well, who does that serve? Well, it only serves the evil people. That is an ideal invented by evil people so that they can rule the world world unimpeded by the virtuous temper of the good. And I just think it's a desperately... Uh, it, it's an excuse for cowardice because I think that good people do need to fight evil. Uh, I, I accept that from comic books, for sure. Uh, I really do accept that uh, that good people need to fight uh, bad people. And uh, I think that rising above and not letting it bother you and uh, applying this um, gooey, dissociated kind of treacly, you know, when you understand everybody's history, you just, you can't get upset with them and so on. Well, I think that's not, uh, that's not a good standard. I think it's a kind of cowardly standard. And, uh, again, it's not even close to UPB, which I have a, uh, a significant problem with. Because, of course, if, if acceptance and, and degenerosity and tolerance and all of that is a virtue, then what about those people who do the exact opposite, right? Surely you should uh, find a way to get through to them or, or correct them or whatever, right? 
Uh, and if, if you can't, then they're sort of like enemies, right? And one of, one will leave the room alive, so to speak. So I really, really dislike this idea that there's this Zen, uh, tranquility and, and so on that we need to get to where the evils of the world don't bother us and we simply shake our head with sorrow. Uh, no, I think that is not healthy. And also, uh, I think that is not, uh, uh, to me, virtue with, with righteous anger is a very powerful force for good in this world. And uh, this kind of dewy-eyed Buddhistic acceptance of immorality is um, uh, is not uh, is not healthy, and uh, serves only to turn the world over to uh, to evil. You know, if all the good men and all the good women and all the powerful thinkers end up observing the world from their dissociated Zen Nietzsche mountaintops, then all they're doing is turning over the world to the jackals and the predators, and that does not help the helpless children uh, who need them. Yeah, I mean, I, I would. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know that I have anything to add to that. I, I think that that perspective um, makes a lot of sense, and it um, it uh, it kind of highlights for me the importance for those who are interested in philosophy to um, when they're when they're exploring self knowledge to keep the philosophical stuff in mind, because a lot of the people who are have sort of laid out the the groundwork for um, self-knowledge haven't so much considered the philosophical aspects. And so, um, you know, like the, the interview, the interview that you did, uh, with, um, sorry, I forgot his name that, uh, that other, uh, therapist who just retired recently. Oh, Daniel. Uh, yeah. Daniel. Yeah. I, I think, um, just, uh, it's, it's useful. It's certainly useful for me and, and I, I bet it would be useful for some other people just to keep that in mind that, when they're sort of going through the psychology stuff to keep in mind that not every psychologist is a philosopher. And so you need to, um, you need to, uh, kind of balance, balance what they have to say. Right. And I, I agree with almost everything that most psychologists would say about relations with the self. But, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, you're right. They're not philosophers any more than I'm a psychologist. Right. So, uh, they, you know, but unfortunately, they tend to take that which you would use to deal with yourself and universalize it to dealing with others. And that's just, it's just empirically not the case that uh, your relationship with yourself, uh, which cannot be evaded or escaped, uh, it, it is fundamentally and qualitatively different from your relationship with others, which, uh, which you can, which you have, which are optional, right? A relationship with yourself is statist. <laughs> it is not voluntary. It is, you know, uh, it is, you're all chained together. Uh, but your relationship with others is anarchic and, uh, uh, it is, uh, it is very, very important not, uh, not to confuse, not to confuse the two. And, um, and, and I, I also do understand, uh, you know, I think, I think where psychologists are coming from in this, you know, so, uh, they see people who may be chronically angry about mistreatment, right? And, and this is why I think that forgiveness becomes important. Uh, also, of course, a lot of people uh, get into psychology as the result of the trauma that they have experienced. There was um, a good article the last week of the New York Times uh, about um, uh, antidepressants and so on by a guy who was a, um, a psychiatrist, uh, a sort of medicating psychiatrist. And he said, you know, he got into psychiatry because uh, his uh, his mother committed suicide and his father was a psychiatrist. And he was talking about how she didn't have any resources and no one could help her and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, dude, your father was a psychiatrist. <laughs> no wonder you're medicating people because you haven't dealt with your own trauma. Right. 
And so because they haven't dealt with their own trauma, they end up with this dewy-eyed forgiveness uh, so that they don't have to take a stand against that which was done wrong in their own lives, right? So this is just my theory. I don't know the guy, but this is just sort of what I, what I thought about it. So um, hmm. uh, I think it is, it is a real challenge. Uh, anger is a, great, is a great challenge for, uh, for self-knowledge, right? Because anger is so often associated with abuse and destructiveness, right? So abusers all right, are obviously angry. Um, I was at uh, the park the other day, and this this woman, like who was two hundred and fifty pounds, literally charged down her three year old son, like came came at him like some monstrous buffalo, uh, just charged, you know, yelling at him, just charged him down, until I said, whoa, <laughs> right? And uh, so she was very angry, right? And he would experience that anger as as overwhelming and destructive, and right. And the, so the things that, that you see when you see this kind of parenting is you see a lot of anger and the kids experience this anger is huge, it's overwhelming. And so anger becomes a problem. And, uh, and then when people feel that they're getting angry, they feel like they might turn into an abuser. But uh, anger is much more subtle and much more challenging than that, right? So if you reject anger, then you reject protection as well and you, re- you reject virtue. Because if you can't get angry, then you can't, uh, you can't, I don't think you could really be virtuous. Um, uh, and, uh, or at least you can't really be effectively virtuous. And yet people are fear that if they get angry, they're going to get locked into chronic and abusive rage. But, um, that's not the case. Ownership for your, for your own anger is maturity. Uh, the projection of your anger onto the actions of others, right? So this mom would say, well, you made me yell at you. I have to yell at you because that you don't listen. Otherwise, I try saying it nicely and then you don't listen. So I have to yell at you, which is to make other people responsible for your anger. And that's when anger turns rancid, when it's not owned by you, but it's supposedly owned by the actions of others and you're simply a helpless respondent. That's when it escalates. But when you own your anger, uh, it is a very, very powerful thing and a positive thing. Right. Well, that that's um, thank you for for all your comments. I, it's going to really help me. Um, get get through the book and be less confused about how I'm feeling about some of the passages because I know there will be some more of these themes. And I, I haven't got, read the whole book, so I really hope that I haven't misrepresented what uh, Mr. Schwartz and uh, Early have to say. I'll, I'll, I'll come back on and and uh, update y'all if if I find out that I was just – I didn't, you know, didn't simply – didn't get all of that they had to say. But um, um, hopefully uh, we had some good insights there. The only thing no, that – Sorry, I, and I just wanted to mention that, that this should not be taken as an analysis of Richard Schwartz's thought, right? right. This is just thoughts right. that he has had that we're talking about in a more general context because I certainly would not consider myself an expert on his thinking. So this is just thoughts about uh, these these kinds of perspectives, which are very common uh, in society, right? Totally. The only thing that uh, what well, you said one thing that I I know it was just sort of a, a passing comment, but you said um, uh, the self uh, or the Miko system is a sort of statist um, environment, and I would I would more compare it to sort of like maybe siblings during childhood, where it's not it, it's an involuntary situation, but it's not necessarily violent, whereas a state a statist relationship is inherently both violent and uh, involuntary. That, that's a fantastic correction. Your, your way of putting it uh, has some limitations in that siblings can go away and you can be separate from them. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. but right. uh, you're absolutely right, of course, and that's a much better, a better way of putting it. It is not statist because it's not coercive. That The fact that you are who you are is not a coercive situation. So, yeah, that's a much, much better way of putting it. Thank you for correcting me on that. Oh, no problem. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, man. And I hope to see you uh, at the barbecue.
Um, I guess while we're waiting for the next caller and just interrupt me if you're ready, there's been some, uh, uh, some interesting uh, feedback on my favorite video to date, which is the heroism uh, part one. Uh, and I sort of wanted to, to clarify a few things, and I did post these uh, on, the, uh, uh, on the video themselves. Uh, certainly some people love it and some people hate it, which, you know, <laughs> I guess is not, not bad. But um, uh, it's interesting that um, this, this element of conspiratorial approach, and I, I sort of wanted to mention a few things about that, and maybe I'll snip this out and post this on YouTube at some point. But um, uh, it's it's tough to use the word evolved, right? So I say that uh, these mythologies, which have been around for thousands of years, have involved ha- have evolved to help emasculate the masses to separate them from true heroism. And there's an interesting thing that comes up whenever I talk about art in in my shows. There's an interesting perspective that comes up, which is the question of conscious intention. And uh, I think it's worth talking about. I think it's worth thinking about. I certainly don't believe that conscious intention is uh, necessary. In fact, I think it's very rare when it comes to art. And I think also, to some degree, when conscious intention is present, art becomes bad, right? It becomes, uh, you know, propagandistic. It becomes oversimplistic and so on. And so I think that uh, conscious intention is not necessary, which is not to say that there's not still intentionality. So, for example, if you've ever seen, there's a, a, I think it's a David Attenborough documentary. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. It's a pack of chimpanzees uh, hunting a baboon, I think, and they end up eating the baboon. And they do all these strategies, right? So they move ahead, they encircle him, they, they try and box him in, they chase him up trees to corner him and so on. And there is a, um, uh, a, a, a real intentionality to them. Now, nobody would sit there and think, you know, like, you know how in those war movies, there's always some grizzled old guy who sits down and, you know, with a stick, you know, puts axes on the beach and says, now you go around here and you go up the middle and so on, right? And we're going to outflank the guy. And <clears throat> Nobody thinks that the chimpanzees have a, a book of plays for catching baboons. But nonetheless, what they're doing is very instinctual and it's very intentional. It's not consciously intentional any more than... Um, when the uh, crocodiles gather to eat the zebras who have to cross the river, they're not sitting there saying, well, you know, it's uh, it's two days until the zebras get here, so we better pack up our little crocodile <laughs> suitcases and, and head on up the river to eat them. But nonetheless, they end there at the right time. So uh, there can be strate- strategy and dominance, and there can be very sophisticated and complicated hunting patterns and so on uh, without conscious intention. I mean, birds migration, uh, you could sort of go on and on, right? But there's so much that can occur in nature that is intentional without being conscious. Uh, and art to me falls into that category, right? So when I did the movie review of Avatar, people said, well, I don't think that James Cameron had all that in his head when he was doing, uh, the film. And it's like, well, of course he didn't. <laughs> of course he didn't. Because he's not a philosopher, <laughs> right? So, um, so no, uh, you don't have to have conscious intention. And the word designed is, is challenging here. I don't think that there's any cavemen who figured out the best way to tell stories to keep their human cattle um, lowing relatively contentedly in captivity. But human beings have an instinct for human ownership exactly the same way that chimpanzees have an instinct for eating baboons, or I guess chasing, catching, and eating baboons. There is an instinct for these kinds of things. And um, uh, so designed is not uh, a conscious uh, design, but these stories have – and I didn't want to use the word evolved because evolved has a positive connotation to it or at least a morally neutral connotation. 
uh, to it. And so I, I really didn't want to use the word evolved. If I say these stories have evolved that way, then it sounds like it's pr- progress in the same way that we assume, or at least I believe, that a human being is superior to a tapeworm in terms of complexity. And I'm certainly happier to be a human being than a tapeworm, especially in my driveway after a heavy rain. So um, I didn't want to use the word evolved. Uh, I didn't want to get into a whole description of how the unconscious shapes artistic choices based on prior values and propaganda and family. You can't do that in a seven-minute video that attempts to put forward a startling and unusual a theory of mythology. Uh, so uh, I think that it's uh, the, the problem with this kind of communication. Uh, I'm not going to change the video. I did post a slight clarification underneath it. I'm not going to change the video. And the reason for that is not because, you know, could it could it be better in some way? I'm sure it could be. Uh, I'm sure it could be. But if I make it better in that way, then uh, I have to make it longer to explain what I mean by um, evolved or versus designed, conscious intention versus unconscious intention, to explain that even in as concise a manner as possible in a way that would be understandable to people would actually make the video probably three times longer, and it would be a real diversion. So when you have seven minutes to present a theory, there's always going to be stuff that people can quibble with, of course, because it's seven minutes, right? I mean, People quibble with UPB, and UPB is, what, 14 hours or 12 hours or whatever. So um, I wouldn't worry too much if people get upset or people recoil or people get bothered by something. Oh, that's fine. There's no way that you can answer questions as extensively as possible without people criticizing you for something. Because if people are emotionally bothered by what you're saying, they're going to criticize you, but they're going to ex post facto, right? As Bomb in the Brain Part 4 talks about, they're going to ex post facto justify it. Right. So, I mean, uh, UPB has lots of examples and is therefore longer. And so what do people say about UPB? There are too many examples. Right? But if there were too few examples, then people would say, well, it doesn't cover this. Right. So, I mean, you understand that there's just no way to please everyone. And when you come up with something which says, um, you, you know, your fantasy life of heroism is robbing you of heroism in the real world, that's going to be upsetting to people. That is going to be upsetting to people, and people are going to react to that, and people are going to get upset with that, and they're going to find something in the video that's going to allow them to justify their feelings, right? And, of course, uh, uh, you know, people could just ask, you know, can you tell me what it is that you mean by design? Uh, I think that's uh, interesting. Uh, they could also, if they sat down and thought about it, Right. They could say, I I very clearly say right in the middle of the video when (laughs) Pan starts dancing to uh, Billie Jean by Michael Jackson, I say these stories have remained essentially unchanged for thousands of years. So clearly they can't be designed because we don't have cavemen, uh, you know, with sticks saying, okay, we put this hero here and we make sure we extrapolate the mythology to there so that the human livestock don't get restless and we strip them and, and then we hand this down in some secret codex handshake with Dan Brown symbols all over the place for thousands of years. So when I say the stories have remained unchanged for thousands of years, that is evidence, clear, clear evidence that it's not designed. But people don't want to, they get upset and they want to act out and then they'll say it's because of the video, right? That's the externalization. Of, uh, of anxiety. And the other thing, of course, is that people will extrapolate and will say, well, Steph is saying that watching movies is immoral, right? <laughs> and it's like what a ridiculous load of nonsense. It says nothing of any sort uh, like that 
in the uh, in the uh, in the uh, video. And of course, I've done reviews of fantasy films. I did reviews of The Matrix. I did reviews of V for Vendetta. Uh, I've done reviews of, of course, of Avatar and uh, uh, and District Nine. And I mean, I've done tons of reviews. And everybody knows that I watch movies and I watch science fiction. And I've done reviews of Star Trek. Uh, and uh, so, of course, I watch these things. I mean, <laughs> and and how on earth could it be? Uh, since evil or immorality is the initiation of force or fraud, uh, how could it conceivably be that watching a movie is either the initiation of force or fraud? So, of course, it's not immoral. And even people who should know better will react, have reacted in that way with no sort of self-curiosity about why it bothers them. But um, I think it's just important to recognize that people will be upset when you point uh, when you point something out and they will dismiss it and they will uh, act as if you are acting aggressively against them and they will you know you get all of these nasty comments that's inevitable uh, if you get a chance you should watch the uh, i think it was in january um john stewart had george lucas you know the man who has uh, a beard where his jawline should be but he had uh, george lucas on uh, on his show and uh, <laughs> And he was saying, you know, well, how come some people like the first series and then some people like the second series and some people like the, really like the third series and they hate it? And he said, does it bother you? And he's like, oh, no, no, you can't listen to people like that. I mean, there are some people who say the first series sucks. There are some people who love Jar Jar Binks. There are some people who hate the Ewoks. Right? You can't listen to any of that. Uh, you just sort of have to follow uh, your own uh, integrity as a storyteller and blah, blah, blah. Now, I mean, I'm not saying that I liked the last bunch of uh, Star Wars films. I think I gave up. In fact, they were just too bad, like too too much tech, too little soul. But um, uh, it could also be just because I'm older, right? I mean, uh, I first saw the Star Wars films, I guess, in 1977. I actually had the LP, so this dialogue is gr- engraved in my brain. And uh, it was funny when I was doing research for the um, Heroes in Part 1 video, I saw some clips from Star Trek and I was like, oh, my God, I know this dialogue like the back of my hand. It's embarrassing. But, um, yeah, just, just so you understand, right? I mean, people will, will get upset. Um, and they'll say, well, well, there's no proof of this, right? It's like, well, um, there is actually provable and testable statements in there. Uh, and if people feel that I'm suddenly calling them immoral for watching fantasy films, well, of course, that's a ridiculous thing to say. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with what I'm uh, talking about. Uh, to me, uh, you can watch mafia films. You can watch pro-status propaganda all you want. The important thing is um, just to be aware, to be aware of what it is that you're watching. I mean, you just need to be aware of what's what's being sold to you, and you, I think you can enjoy you can enjoy it as much as you want. All right. Well, uh, that's it for my brief rant uh, about that. Um, if you would like to uh, uh, questions e comments e, we have we have some time, my friends. Oh, the barbecue, but well, I'm still working on that because I'm still trying to figure out um, if I'm going to pork fest or not. So, sorry to be annoying, but uh, uh, we're still trying to figure that out. Hello? Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello. Um, am I coming through clearly? Yeah, it's great. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Um, it's just a, a quick thing. Uh, I, I posted on the board uh, about a week ago last Tuesday about um about an incident that's obviously happened in my life uh i don't know if you, you you've read it it's about um my wife and i have we eloped and i recently told told everybody everybody found out and uh i just wanted to tell everybody and obviously yourself that 
there's been a very positive outcome from it. And I'd just like to th- kind of thank everybody who who was involved in in answering my questions. Now, um, let me just uh, uh, just re- let me just sort of see if I can catch myself up to speed. Was this where you were talking about that you were upset with your parents about their re- uh, attitude about your elopement when they found out, or was that, that a different thread? Um, yeah, it was basically my uh, my wife and I we we eloped. Um, we, we wanted to keep it secret from everybody, mainly because we were very young, and and everybody. Everybody would would feel that it was too too soon, and so we wanted to keep it to ourselves for the time being until until later, at which point we could kind of uh, discredit all the you know all the any bad feeling there might have been about us being married so young. Right. Um, it's when when my 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 father found out he 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 was very upset because in in general we're we were always quite quite honest with one another. Um, I mean, I, I, we have we usually have a, a very good relationship. Um, <clears throat> you know, yeah. I'd, I'd say we're almost. Getting a little bit emotional here. No, no, that's fine. Listen, I'm um, I'm not going to disagree with you, but you understand that it's a bit confusing, right? To hear I kept the love of my life and my marriage and all that from my. For my father, but we're close. Yes, yeah. And I, look, I'm not saying you're not, right? I'm just saying that from the outside, uh, that that doesn't quite that doesn't quite fit. It's like yeah. I love my life, I love my wife I, so much. I'm having a secret affair. Yeah. Well. <sighs> and I just, I just curious what you mean when you say that you're close and again i'm not disagreeing with you i'm not criticizing i just like to sort of understand that a little bit more because it doesn't fit together in my head i i guess it's kind of hard to hard to describe i mean in, in many senses we're 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 a lot more like friends than we are father and son you know we we kind of hang out together i, I used to work with him and I, I i used to enjoy it very much um but I guess this was just something that I felt I couldn't, I couldn't go to him about because I knew what he would feel on the matter. That he would feel that it was was too soon, and he he, he might try and of marrying so soon, uh, and I, 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 that wasn't really what I wanted, and I I, I didn't really want to have to kind of do that right up in front of his face does that make sense well um i i I can certainly understand that if you're doing something that you feel that someone is going to criticize you for that there is a desire to to hide that right i'm just i mean curious what you felt the long-term impact of such a thing that you could not possibly keep secret uh was going to what what sort of effect that was going to have on your relationship with your father or your parents i guess in the long run I guess what I really, really wanted was for them to not have any negative opinions about my new wife. Um, 
I, I didn't want them thinking that, oh, she's, you know, she's convinced him to marry him so young. It's, you know, the, the, perhaps there is something uh, not quite right there about her. And I, 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 I didn't really want that kind of suspicion about her because uh, she's, she is fantastic. She is, she is the woman of my life. Um, I, I didn't I didn't want my decision to marry her so young to basically give her a bad reputation within my family alright and do you mind if I uh, ask some questions sure sure um <clears throat> When so you you were dating this this uh, woman for a while and then you guys decided to get married is that right like you asked her or she asked you? Yeah, I I I just turned to her one day and just I just asked her out of the blue, and she was she was overwhelmed. <laughs> and your parents knew that you were dating this woman. Yes, yes, they were. And uh, what uh, was their thoughts uh, about her? What were their thoughts about her? Um. Uh, they they liked her. Um, they, they'd only met her a small number of times uh, and hadn't had a huge amount of time to get to know her uh, before I proposed. Uh, so, and what was your uh, primary fear about uh, telling your parents uh, I'm going to marry this girl, this woman? That because they 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 hadn't known her for very long and for and hadn't gotten to know her very well. That that they might see this as some kind of I don't know, like a. I don't know. Like, I, I guess my absolute worst fear was that they would think she was some kind of succubus who was, you know, here to reel you in my soul. soul. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. I, and that's not obviously the image I wanted to give them about. What image do you think you've given them by eloping and keeping it secret? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and I don't mean of I don't mean of your wife. I mean I mean of you. Yeah. Well, I mean, when when I talked to my dad about it most recently, uh, he he was very upset that I I had lied to him. Uh, I mean, that's a big one, right? Yeah, yeah. And I you understand. I'm 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 not criticizing. Like I'm just pointing out that um, uh, I, it's it's I it's a, it's a big thing to. To, to keep from your parents, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to, I'm just, and again, I'm, I, I sympathize, I really do, right? And I'm, I'm trying to understand, I mean, it's, um, it's sort of an, unre- in my opinion, right? It's sort of an unrepairable thing to do to your parents. In other words, how are you going to get their, tr- like, you might have four kids and they don't know, you know what I mean? Like, how are you going to get their trust back uh, and, and regain the intimacy that you say you had before, 
when you've kept something like this from them. And just like, that, that's what I'm sort of trying to, I mean, I'm trying to sort of put myself in your parents' shoes, right? So then my, my daughter goes yeah. and, and gets married and doesn't tell me. I mean, that would just be so shocking to me that she felt that she couldn't talk to me about it, that she felt I was going to be so hostile or judgmental or negative that she would just have to hide it all from me and come up later. I don't, I don't know. That, that's some serious stuff between you and your parents that has nothing to do with your wife. Yeah. Mm. And I'm not saying it's their fault or your fault. It's not that what I would say would mean anything. I'm just some guy on the internet. But, but that seems to me that that's, that's where you need, need to go. I mean, if you want your parents in your life and you're close and so fantastic, right? I think that, that y'all really need to sit down and, f- and figure out what happened in your relationship that this became something you could do for fear of the consequences of honesty, right? Because you obviously want an honest relationship with your parents. I think everybody does, just as we want an honest relationship with everyone. And if you have people in your life that you're you're close to and you have that connection with particularly a deep and historical connection like obviously parent-child. If you have people in your life and you have as an option to lie and withhold things so fundamental from them, I think that's not a good position to to be in. Do you know what I mean? Like to me, it's like, you know, be honest or don't have people in your life. But I I would say don't have people in your life where you have this kind of permission to 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 do this. Because that's kind of like having a relationship, but then opting out of the relationship when you feel it's not uh, convenient or positive for, for you to have those standards, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. And you understand, I'm not saying, you know, bad dude lying. I'm, I'm, I'm really I'm not saying I can yeah. really sympathize yeah. with the situation that you're in. But, yeah. you know, I, if you're going to have them in I your mean, life, when, you need to have that commitment to be, to be honest, to, to not do anything like this again, to just like have it as yeah. a no kidding rule. Like you're never going to do something like this again, because I think without that commitment, I just, I can't see how your relationship with your wife and, and her relationship, because obviously she participated in this, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, she had to, I forgot. She yeah. didn't call her parents and say, I don't know, my fiance is crazy. He wants to elope and I'm not going to have that and blah, blah, blah. Right. So she obviously participated with this. So now you have, uh, you know, whereas before there was potential antagonism in your head, in a sense, now you have antagonism, right? Because, <laughs> you know, your, your fiance was fine with keeping the secret, uh, and, uh, you were fine with keeping the secret. You know, it, I, I can't tell you, and nobody can tell you what to do, but I can tell you what I would do in your situation and, you know, you can take it for what it's worth. First of all, I try and yeah, figure out what happened in my relationship with my parents that I felt I had to keep this from them or where I felt that this was a reasonable uh, thing, right? Because, look, there are going to be people in your life who are going to criticize what you do. They're, they're just, it's going to happen. Yeah. In, you can't lift a goddamn thumb of this finger without 10,000 people saying to you it should be a, you know, <laughs> a finger. <laughs> oh, you shouldn't be, you should do this, not that. It's a, it's a terrible font. You know, I hate the cover of that book. Everybody is a critic, right? That's, you know, the moment you take a breathe, uh, take a breath in, people tell you, uh, scream at you that you should be exhaling. That's just natural uh, when it comes to being alive in this rather tortured planet that we live on. So, but, but if you have as a standard, right, because this is a UPB thing, right? What, whatever we do becomes our standard, right? Philosophy is is what we do. It's not what we think. Right. It's what we do. And so if I were your wife, 
I wouldn't have allowed the elopement. Because I would say, well, if you can keep something this important from your parents, then you can keep something this important from me as well. And I don't want you to have that standard. And if this means we've got to sit down with your parents and work for six months to convince them that it's going to be a good match, then we will do that. But I don't want to have our marriage founded on you keeping something so important from people that you're close to because that can happen to me, right? If they do it with you, they can do it to you, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. I hadn't. And I'm not saying your wife has, but it's there, right? It's like, and I'm not, I'm not equating the two, right? But, you know, uh, marriages that start on infidelity end in infidelity because that's just that, that uh, breaking of, of trust is the foundation. And your marriage began with a deception of the people who you're closest to, right? And now that is a principle that your wife has seen you execute with regards to your parents. That is not going to help your marriage in the long run. And that's, you know, my, I'm sort of trying to bend uh, every effort I can and not to chastise or to, oh, bad. I mean, fuck that. That doesn't, that doesn't matter. That's not helpful in the situation. What I think is important is that, uh, I don't think it was the right thing to do. Not for some abstract moral principle of honesty, though I think that's important, but fundamentally because your parents are still in your life and you have this lie that has probably broken their hearts quite a bit, right? Your wife is in your life yeah. who has participated in the lie that broke your parents' hearts probably more than a little bit. And I think that you want, obviously, your marriage to succeed. You want your relationship with your parents to succeed. And I think that what you need to do is say, bad decision to keep everything from everyone, and apologize yes, yeah. and and just f try and figure out, you know, and, and your parents have some, I'm not putting the whole onus on you, right? Your parents have a responsibility and role in this as well because they raised you in such a way that you felt you couldn't come to them with this, right? So I'm not saying it's all you, bad, you know, what that doesn't, again, that doesn't matter. There's no point assigning moral responsibility to relationships that are going to continue. And if you can continue this, fantastic, right? But something happened in your relationship with your parents where you felt that eloping and secrecy was a positive solution. And, and clearly, of course, it's not. Because they're going to find out anyway. They're still going to be in your life. You're going to be married. And now, any suspicions they may have had have been replaced with suspicion and heartbreak that is fully confirmed, right? Yeah. yeah. And your wife is going to have trust issues with you because you have uh, uh, you know, kept such an important thing from your parents. And that's going to fester, I, I believe. What do I know, right? This is just my theory. It's my, my opinion. It's not even a theory. It's just an opinion. You can get rid of it if you think it's nonsense. But it's the trust issues with your wife that I think are going to be the most important in the future. If she knows that you can keep incredibly important information separate from those who have a hell of a lot longer and deeper relationship with you than, than she does, how secure is she going to feel in your honesty and integrity with her? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That does make sense. And I, I hope you feel like I'm I mean, not, I'm not trying to sort of oh, finger. No, no, I, I, I understand. I, I totally understand where you're coming from. Uh, I mean, when when it finally all came out, I've never felt so so horrible, such such guilt. It was it was really horrendous, and I I did say to myself, like you said, I will never do anything like that again.
Right. And I, th- I think that you need to make that commitment to people in your life. But more important, because commitments are kind of empty, right? Like everyone who smokes says, this is my last cigarette, right? Every day. <laughs> right. So, uh, so the commitment is, is important. But, uh, I think that, uh, you know, getting, getting to the root of how this became an option, right? And it may have nothing, it may, may not be primarily to do with your parents. Maybe some teacher, some priest, some other authority figure where lying and, and deception and so on was the only way to survive. But, but in some way, this became a viable option for you. And, uh, oh, I'm just telling you, keeping, keeping big secrets from people in your life that you're close to is, is a miserable path to go on for the long run, for sure. I just, you know, I really want to try and turn you away from that that particular road. Uh, you know, it is that short-term hit of getting away from a confrontation, but the long-term effects are uh, pretty disastrous. Uh, as I've seen, again, I'm not, <laughs> I'm no predictor, right? This is just what I've seen in my life, but secrets uh, are a kind of cancer in relationships. I mean, it's, um, it isn't in, I mean, when I think back at it, I can't, I can't understand what it was I was afraid of. Not really, not properly. I just had this kind of. Well, and sorry. Now that everybody if knows, if you could have understood what you were afraid of, then you could have talked about it, right? Yeah. Right. You you weren't avoiding your parents. You were avoiding some knowledge within yourself. I know that's really oblique and probably not very helpful. No, no. Right. But, but no, as you say, when you look just back, things I don't know about myself. <laughs> yeah. 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 Some knowledge you, you were avoiding things that you can't see or whatever. Right. But, but the reason, the reason I think that, that we need to have, you know, commitment to, to these annoying values, like just honesty, no matter what, the reason why we need to have those commitments is so that we can uh, also figure out where our own resistances are, right? So if you avoid something that's really difficult for you, that that's the right thing to do, right? Which in this case, I think would have been to talk with your parents and, and you know, for you, for your parents, and most importantly, for your relationship with your wife to say, no, 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 like I have a commitment to honesty in my relationships. I can't do this to my parents and I'm never going to do it for you, right? That would do it to you. That would, I think, that that to me is the most important thing to come out of this, right? Um, but by by avoiding doing that, you avoided figuring out what your resistance to it was. And so you don't know why you avoided it so much, if that makes any sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, if we take a big detour around the graveyard because we think there might be a ghost there, what we never find out is whether there's actually a ghost there or not, right? Yeah. And I think, I think you need to know what it is within you, the, the thoughts or the feelings that are within you that make this a viable option. Because if you don't know that, you're missing a very, very important part of, of self-knowledge, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a difficult one because, I mean, there's – I mean, I, I've, I, I've decided that after this I, I am going to – um, seek, you know, some form of uh, for therapy, just for my personal to understand why it is I did this and 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 what it is I thought I was going to get out of it. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, but, sure. And look, because yeah, certainly you knew what you were going to get out of it, which is an alleviation of anxiety in the short run, right? 
Yeah. I mean, that, that's, I mean, the, the, yeah. the short term gains are, are pretty clear, right? Yeah. But, uh, but, but of course, you know that, I mean, it's laying the foundation for significant, significant challenges, uh, down the road. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't tell you, of course, what it is, right? And, and in conversations with, um, with you, in conversations with your wife, right? The other thing too is that, it could be secondhand avoidance, right? So maybe she was really anxious about it. Maybe there's something in her own family history where there were predatory succubi who stole the lifeblood of innocent men or whatever, right? Maybe she is a witch. No, <laughs> maybe, maybe there are these things in her history. Maybe her, you were helping, uh, uh, her avoid her anxiety and going along with, with whatever may have been going on consciously or unconsciously for her. It's, it's complicated, right? Obviously a decision like this has a number of factors that all have to come together. Uh, your parents may have been in a bad place. Your wife may have this anxiety she's unaware of. You may have some anxiety that comes from your parents or other authority figures around honesty and openness. A lot of things had to come together. And I think you really need to know what those things are. Um, because otherwise you'll just try and brute force willpower it. You know, like, I'm going to make a commitment to never. Right. But if you don't know what the causes are of your behavior, you can't make any commitments to change it. Yeah. Like you can't say I'm yeah, going to be a destination if you don't have a map or any directions, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the most obvious thing for me is that it, it's probably I, I've always kind of had trouble with uh, stuff that's you know very talking about things that are very personal to me. I mean, I can talk about all sorts of things, but stuff that's very like my personal f- thoughts and feelings are something that I, I have trouble uh, uh, trouble communicating right right you know because uh, just because of all sorts of things you know my parents divorces and all this sort of thing but are your parents did divorce I, know, it's, I, I think yes yes they, they divorced I'm sorry to hear um, about that and that's that's a risk yeah, I mean that, that was uh, that's a risk. I mean, w- one of the, um, I was just reading this the other day. It's a book, it's a book called Nurture Shock, which I'd, I'd recommend to everyone. Um, the best predictor of a child's relationship with peers as a child and in the future is his parents' relationship with each other, not his parents' relationship with him, not his mother's or father's relationship with him, but their relationship with each other is the best predictor of how our relationships are going to go is our parents' relationship, not anything that happens with us, but what happens with them. And so, <clears throat> were secrets a big problem in your family? Did your parents separate as a result of, of secrets that were kept, or was it something else? Um, I've it's it's never been clearly explained to me because I mean, it, it, this all happened. <laughs> well, well, that's a secret, seven. right? <laughs> so, yeah. doesn't that seem like a secret? I, yeah, I, I I believe it's to do with um, my father's fidelity. Um. <laughs> But it's you know it, it's one of those things that nobody really wants to talk about because it's you know I, I guess it's quite painful for a lot of people. So it's, well, then I think I know what you're doing. And do you mind if I give you one of my nonsense okay. theories about what you're doing? Sure. Well, um, I think that. You are trying to get your parents to understand what it was like to grow up without knowledge of very important things. 
and to continue to be in the dark about what happened with your parents' marriage. Right? So I think that you're mad at your parents for the secrecy. And I think that you want secrets to come out in the family. And I think you then kept a secret which could not be concealed so that it would come out so that your family would talk about secrets and concealment. Mm. When you just said that, that gave me a very, very weird feeling. Uh, go on. It was kind of like, like a a real sinking sensation in my guts when you just said that. And tell me, tell me what uh, what was the feeling like? What what did it seem like? What did it feel like? It was. Um, I mean, was it a good or bad was, feeling? Was it? Uh, oh. It, it, it 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 wasn't a good feeling, right? No, it it was. Yeah, I think you I think you might have been onto something there. <laughs> I might have been onto something. Well, let's hope so. Let's hope so. But uh, go on. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they no, nobody has ever really really talked about what happened and. I mean, obviously, at a young age like that, it's quite, something like that is quite quite a devastating thing. Oh, it's not quite. I mean, it's massively devastating, right? I mean, your world falls apart when your parents get divorced. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it's always the worst thing in the world in terms of the alternatives or whatever, right? But it is completely devastating, right? It is completely devastating when that happens. Yeah. I mean, all children, I believe, really want to worship their parents. They really, really want to worship their parents. And when your parents end up in a situation like that, uh, I think that really does sort of smash up one of the most fundamental religions of the world, which is parental worship, which I think kids really want and need. Mm. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> it's yeah, I mean, also at the time it was a it was a very shouty breakup. It wasn't a you know, it wasn't civil, it wasn't amicable. Right. Yes, not yeah. There's no such thing so as a civil was... divorce. I think that's a complete myth. A divorce yeah. is a brutal, ugly, vicious destructive situation which doesn't mean that it's more destructive than all the alternatives but it is savagely brutal uh, on everyone involved and and you can see this i mean the health effects of a divorce for men in particular can last for decades um uh, like physical uh, susceptibility to to illness uh, and early mortality the effects of divorce uh, are like a pack a day smoking uh, i mean that may be too strong but it definitely it's the same as a smoking habit the effects of divorce are worse than physically uh, are worse than not getting married in the first place. And marriage is, is beneficial to one's health, but divorce is worse for one's health than if one had never been married. So it puts you in the worst conceivable category as far as health goes. It is uh, brutal and savage on the children. Uh, it is uh, uh, just an unbelievably uh, difficult and uh, ugly uh, situation to be in. And uh, uh, particularly if, if you were aware of um, verbal 
uh, abuse. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't say verbal abuse, cause, but you said shouty, right? If you're aware of verbal aggression between your parents, uh, that is that is just catastrophic. Um, <clears throat> most children, uh, in fact, almost all children, would far prefer that a parent verbally aggress against them than against the other parent. Uh, we we all will take those bullets for our family, and you can see this because children act out when their parents are fighting in order to get their parents to stop fighting. Right, so there's the, the problem child who acts out, who diverts the parents' aggression from each other towards the child. That's a foundational survival mechanism, because a child can survive being yelled at. But of course, biologically, if parents separated when we were evolving, that was really catastrophic to the um, uh, to the to the child in terms of survivability. So children will take the bullets of parental conflict. And if you saw that stuff occurring, uh, that is that is very harsh, uh, particularly at the age you were at. And there's no there's no good age, but um, a divorce is, uh, is just unbelievably brutal on, uh, on families. And uh, so I'm, I just wanted to just give you my deep, deep sympathies. And if you don't know why, as an adult, I would be annoyed myself. I'm putting myself in your shoes. I would be annoyed because it's like, wait a minute. If you guys' marriage, like I'd say to my parents, if you guys' marriage was my template for adult relationships and I don't know what went wrong, then... Aren't I kind of being handed the same potential for failure that you had? If you don't, like, if you crashed your, your ship catastrophically into these rocks that I'm now sailing around and you don't tell me where the damn rocks are, then aren't I just going to smash up my ship? Like, why the hell don't you people tell me what the hell went wrong so that I have a better chance with my marriage than you had with yours? And I think that's what you're acting out by keeping this secret. That your family has an issue with secrets. And your secret coming out is a perfect opportunity for you guys to open the vaults. And I think that's what it's for. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I would take that opportunity because I'll tell you, you know, this is what a lack of self-knowledge does, right? And again, I'm not accusing you of a general lack of self-knowledge and not even that that would be an accusation. But oh, in no. This area, <laughs> right. But in this area where you didn't know, you, you, you very likely will continue to escalate. And what that means is you will keep more secrets from people until the issue of secrecy gets dealt with in your primary relationships. It escalates. This stuff escalates until it gets dealt with. And of course, I hope that you will be proactive and try and figure this stuff out. You know, if you can get your parents oh, yeah. to therapy with you or go into therapy yourself or just figure out what your relationship is with secrecy is so important. And that's why, you know, I don't say bad person for keeping secrets because that doesn't matter. What's important is to figure out the why. The why, the why, the why. And that gives you real illumination and can really bring you closer to, to those around you. Because I think that's what you're, I think that's what you're acting at. Yeah, I, I, th I think you're right. I think. I think you've, uh, yeah, you've really illuminated that for me. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, That's... listen, I'm, I'm very glad. And, and I just wanted to, uh, to really thank you for bringing that, uh, that up. It's, uh, it's a very challenging topic. Obviously, it's not a fun thing to, to talk about, but I think you just did a fantastic job. And I, I really do appreciate the trust that you, that you expressed by bringing this up with me. And I, I'm glad that it was uh, of some use. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, Obviously, all these things are very, uh, very difficult to talk about. You know, 
Yeah. There's a special kind of heartbreak for children when they lose respect for their parents. There is a really special kind of heartbreak uh, that I think is worse than just about anything that uh, it's certainly the worst heartbreak that I've experienced in my life is uh, losing respect for, for my parents. Uh, I don't think I've ever had anything that difficult uh, before or since. And uh, it is, and I, I'm not saying this is you, I'm just saying from, from my own experience, um, uh, and uh, it is something that, that really does need to, to be talked about uh, with, uh, with your parents. And I'm, again, I'm not saying you've lost all respect, I'm just saying that that's my, my experience. I want to sort of translate my experience to yours, but um, uh, I, I believe that divorce uh, uh, shatters the belief uh, in, in the virtue and ability of parents uh, because it is it is such an obvious failure. I mean, it may be necessary in the same way that cutting off your leg may be necessary, but nobody's saying it's good. Um, but uh, it is such an obvious uh, failure uh, on the part of parents, particularly when there are kids your age, that they just can't stick it out, that they had kids before figuring this stuff out, that they couldn't negotiate anything better, that they couldn't be more civil to each other. What happens in divorce is parents lose moral authority and that is the worst heartbreak for children in my opinion is this the the loss of moral authority because then what is revealed is the mere exercise of power uh in terms of getting children to conform how on earth how on earth do divorced parents say to their kids sharing is good being nice to other people is good having friends is good right not yelling is good. Like they lose moral authority, particularly when you say if there's a verbally aggressive divorce, they lose the moral authority. And that is particularly heartbreaking for children because then it means that you're simply controlled through power and size. And that's just heartbreaking because children so much want to be good. Children so much want to love and respect their parents that there's a special kind of heartbreak in divorce. In my opinion and experience, I'm not going to claim this is an empirically proven fact, but um, if you do look up, and there's people are asking, has there been a um, a podcast on divorce? And no, there hasn't. And my parents divorced when I was a, a baby, so I didn't. Um, uh, I don't have any memory of my father being around. And I said, but but they had a a brutal and ugly divorce, and my mother was still trying to sue my dad for money. You know, sixteen years wow. after they divorced. I mean, it was just ridiculous. Uh, he moved to the other side of the world. And um, uh, there were secrets. There were secrets. And uh, I, I will never know the story. The true story of uh, my parents' relationship is the vaults there are, uh, you know, they, they've just turned into stone mountains. There's not even a cave in there anymore. And, uh, yeah. and that's why I think when you, when you, if you can't get that information clearly, and there's no guarantee if you ask the question that you'll get straight up answers, right? But I think it's definitely worth pursuing. Um, but you, you, you really need to know this stuff so that you can avoid these rocks in your own marriage as best you can. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I mean, actually, my, my, my parents are going to be actually coming together uh, to meet me in a month or two at my graduation. Uh, so that, I think that's that might be a good good opportunity to talk to them both kind of privately together because they they don't often <laughs> yeah yeah i think i think so they don't have place. to be together and in fact they may uh, you may get more out of them separately in terms of the reasons for the divorce you don't want them replaying out the divorce because that's just going to be traumatic again right for you um 
I mean, I, yeah. again, yeah, I, yeah. this is my, you know, my, my, um, my parents were together again. I guess it was about, uh, 10 years ago and my dad came to visit and, um, <clears throat> they were over at my place and my dad was in the backyard and my mom was in the kitchen and I hadn't seen them together, but I, maybe except for my brother's wedding, maybe once or twice before. And it sounds funny, and it really wasn't that funny, but it was a little funny at the time. Um, my dad had a cold, and one of my mother's continual complaints, apparently, about my dad was that he always had a cold because he just he didn't wash his hands enough or something like that. He didn't you know he blew his hands into his sleeve or something, blew his nose into his sleeve or something like that, right? And my dad was in the backyard and he sneezed, right? Now, now bear in mind this is thirty fucking years after they divorced, right? My my dad sneezed in the backyard. My mom's head whipped up, you know, like a viper. And she looked at me and she said, you know, that's probably the same cold he had when we were married. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's 30 fucking years. Is there not a statute of limitations on this stuff? But, you know, for some people there is. I mean, I'm not saying that's your parents, right? I'm just saying that that was sort of my my experience. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right, actually. I think it, w- it would be better to be to talk to them individually because it's less likely. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I'm telling you that it, it, you know, in my opinion too, it would be good for your parents, right? I mean, yeah. it, it, the the best thing that you can get out of something like divorce is to help your kids avoid the same fate. That's the only way that you can get something good out of that sort of situation. And if they can do that, I think it will give them uh, a lot of some some peace and resolution about that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But and I, I would also, um, uh, again, as I always say, I would talk to a therapist about your experiences with this and, and secrets and and all of that and the frustration that you may have had about not knowing what the hell happened. That's, you know, that's tough. I mean, how do parents say be honest to their kids when they're keeping secrets themselves, right? And that's probably part of you know what what's frustrating you and what's uh, maybe compelled you to do these things is like, how do you guys like it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if that were thing is, I'm thinking about that now, and if that was my motivation for it, then I that just makes me feel worse. <laughs> oh God! I, now, please I know don't I just feel kind worse. Of feel, no, 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 no! no. <laughs> please don't feel worse. Please don't feel worse. Now no, I kind of feel malicious. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not malicious. It's not malicious at all. Right? It's not malicious at all. But I guarantee, and this is why honesty is so important. It's the fundamental tool for self knowledge. Right? <clears throat> because if you had gone to your parents openly and vulnerably about this. This would have come up for sure before you got married. The secrets and these issues, right? Right? Because if your parents were complaining about secrecy or were complaining about being kept in the dark, right? You, you would have felt angry. And if you'd said, I feel angry right now, you know, good old RTR stuff, real time relationship stuff. If you said, I feel really angry when you guys are talking about the need for open, open, openness and I don't know why. And you'd kept on to that, right? Then you would have gotten to it, right? And you guys could have had a really electric and open conversation. Hopefully, <clears throat> you know, at least there would have been conditions that would have made that possible probably for the first time about these issues, right? But um, I, I, I really do sympathize. So I'm glad that I didn't see my parents divorce. I'm really, really glad. It was a, it was a true blessing. My brother did. And uh, I think it did some seriously bad stuff to him. Uh, so uh, I am very, very glad that I do not recall anything 
about my parents' uh, divorce because it was not uh, it was not a pretty thing at all. And um, I mean, if people are still angry about stuff thirty years later, imagine what it was like in the midst of that volcanic eruption. So um, I think that uh, I just wanted to express my enormous sympathy. I think it's uh, certainly harder than what I had to go through in that realm because really seeing it and also being kept in the dark, right? I mean, there are ways that parents can talk to children about divorce, even at the age of seven, that has some value and utility. But uh, as you, of course, have found, uh, keeping secrets just makes things worse. And if this secret has been kept for the length of, I don't know how old you are now, and it doesn't really matter, but seven to now, that is a long time for a secret to be kept. And that has a distorting effect on the relationship. And uh, I really, really hope that you can open up these channels of communication and get some resolution and closure uh, in these issues for you, uh, with your future relationship with your wife, with your future relationship with your parents. I think that would be very, very important. Yeah, I, my, my, I, is after I graduate my and I get a job, my first thing to do is is to get a, ther- a therapist. I think. Well, if you're in college, uh, you might be able to get free therapy, right? There may be a therapist through the student center. Yeah, the <laughs> the waiting list is about twelve months long. So. <laughs> oh, is it really? Right. So you'll either be better or not by the time you get to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I, I would certainly certainly recommend that. I mean, people complain about the cost of therapy, and I'm sorry. I mean, it is a significant cost, and maybe your parents will chip in if they, you know, have, have a mind. Um, I think that's it's only reasonable. Um, but uh, it's you know, there's nothing more expensive than a divorce. It uh, it breaks people's hearts, I think, for the rest of their lives, uh, and it is an you know because. It's one of these, I mean, if there are kids, if you have like a starter marriage for a year or two, I don't think that's the end of the world. But uh, if you have kids, uh, it is it is a heartbreak that I've not, I've not seen anybody recover from. And this is just my anecdotal nonsense. There's no truth to any of this. It's just what I have seen in, in a number of different circumstances. But, um, you know, you can smell divorced people. They have that heartbreak exoskeleton on them. Uh, they walk around like lobsters in full armor, you know, just clanking and rustling and weeping from every joint. And um, uh, I think that it is a special kind of heartbreak. And I would, uh, I, you know, I, I can't urge you strongly enough to take whatever steps necessary to to make sure that your wife doesn't uh, absorb your uh, lack of honesty with your parents to be something that could happen to her, that the secrets don't infect your marriage as they have uh, perhaps infected your family of origin. Uh, you know, do whatever you can to avoid uh, getting divorced um, other than <laughs> stay in an abusive relationship. By, but, but do whatever you can because it is, it is, it is a kind of uh, irrevocable heartbreak in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the thing that I always uh, kind of reconciled myself with was that, I, it, you know, it may have been horrible that they gotten divorced, but it could have been much worse. They could have stayed together, you know. <laughs> Well, sure. And, and in the same way, you know, if you, uh, if you have to get your leg cut off, that's better than dying. But that doesn't mean that you don't, groove, you don't grieve the leg. I mean, I have no doubt that my parents were better off apart. But that doesn't mean that there's not an enormous amount of grieving and, and heartbreak to process. I mean, we can – and of course, as a kid, you don't, you don't know that or you don't you – know, you have to process things as they occur, right, as they happen in the sort of mental sequence that, that they occur in. So you have to think, I think, about what happened for you at the age of seven in this uh, in this kind of circumstance uh, and uh, not with the sort of emotional maturity and hindsight and so on of, of where you are now, 
but it's, you know, uh, it's in a sense, it's the time machine. We have to go back to that little spindly body and that oversized head and, uh, uh, and, and figure out what our occurrence was at that time. Right. Um, uh, because that's, that's what we actually have to, to deal with is, is that perspective and the maturity that we can layer on later. It's not unimportant, but, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use that as a way of saying, and therefore there's no grieving because I kind of understand now, but uh, I think that kind of understanding can be a way of avoiding, uh, that kind of grieving. And uh, if you avoid that, you are going to end up avoiding yourself because it's a huge part of you. You're also going to end up avoiding other people, which is going to be harmful to your relationship. So, you know, dive in, my friend. I think it's, uh, it's going to pay off in spades. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And spend time meditating on your parents' relationship with each other. You know, there's a, we, we always think about, cause kids, you know, we kind of self-involved, right? So kids, we think about people's relationship with, with us, right? But, but it's so important to, to think about your parents' relationship with each other. Uh, that is so, so important. Um, because that is, I mean, this is not just my opinion. This is a pretty well established, um, psychological and scientific fact that is our parents' relationship with each other. That is a huge, huge predictor. It's the largest single predictor of our relationship with others as adults because, um, we learn how to love from watching our parents love each other, not from them claiming to love us, uh, or actually loving us. But, uh, uh and we spend a lot of time thinking about our parents' relationship with us, but it's very, very important when you get older to think about your parents' relationship with each other, uh, so that you can get a sense of, of what kind of ship you've inherited, what kind of storm you may be sailing in and where the rocks might be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely, I'll definitely, definitely take that advice. I think it's it's something definitely that needs to be dealt with. Well, I appreciate that, and um, I just I appreciate that, and I'm going to move on if that's right with you. And I, I hope that you will uh, that's, that's, let, uh, let us know or let me know uh, how it goes. And sure. uh, I really do want to uh, again, just wanted to appreciate. I know it's a tough thing to bring up, and you know, to talk about secrets in a public forum is you know is a tough thing to do. And I really just wanted to to acknowledge you for uh, uh, for doing that. I think that's a fantastic thing, and I'm I'm very glad that the call has been of help. Thank thank you very much. Uh, I I likewise I I'm, I very much appreciate. You've uh, the, the clarity I think you brought to the, the situation. Thank I'm very you. glad, and you know, best of luck with your marriage, man. I think glad that you found somebody to love. It's a beautiful thing. Oh, it is fantastic. It really is. It is. All right, so we have time for another. Um, uh, we have uh, time for another uh, question, uh, comments, or issue. Uh, somebody has asked, if given the opportunity, would I be interested in authoring the volume on volunteerism? for the Four Dummies series. Oh, I'm telling you, I would love to write more. If there's one thing that I miss uh, in being a parent, it's having the time to write. But um, I just don't at the moment. So uh, I uh, uh, I absolutely would be interested. Uh, I think that in a year or two, I will be able to author some more. So um, uh, I would be very interested. And I think we had a few other people who wanted to talk. And we can go a little bit over if people are very interested. I mean, it, it's your show. I'm, I'm here to help as best I can. So uh, if you'd like to, to speak, go for it. Hello, uh, Steph. I was, wondering if you could, I was wondering if you could help me with a problem that I've had for a long time now. I can uh, I, I know I've, I've recently decided uh, to move to uh, Philadelphia. And I've been... Uh, I know I've t- uh, you you heard about some of the issues I've, that have been coming up over email, but I had another one that came up today. Sure. Um, 
I've been throwing away some of the books that I have in order to, I can only take like a couple of suitcases and maybe a box with me on the train to go there. And, you know, I've been stuck in this same town. It's a college town for about six years now, since the 2004 or so. And I was noticing when I was putting away the books, I felt kind of sad because, you know, I hadn't been uh, really interested in the, in some of the subjects that I used to be in high school and stuff like that. And I was thinking that, that it was uh, something to do with uh, the teachers. Uh, like I was able to actually get some sort of, uh, I don't know, affection or something. Or I felt like I was worth something or something because of their uh, thoughts about me and stuff like that. And so I worked really hard to learn, like, uh, physics and uh, programming and things like that. And I was wondering if you could give me some thoughts on that if, or ask me questions or anything. If you... uh, I'm still trying to understand what it is that you mean. So when you were throwing away books of subjects that you were more interested in in the past, you felt a, a kind of sadness or a nostalgia for the past. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, like I've been uh, – I've, I've kept them and I've hoped that it would come back, but it, it really hasn't. Sorry, what would come back? Uh, the interest in those subjects, because I felt good when I was uh, learning them and stuff like that. Right. Way back then. And they never have come back. Now, what's interesting is that you didn't talk about the subjects themselves. You talked about your relationship with your teachers. That, that's right. I, right. I, I know I was really interested in them. I, I learned it outside, out of class. Even after high school for a while, I had, I'd go to the bookstores and spend hours in them, and, the, and I'd buy books. And I, I have, like, a couple bookcases full of books and stuff that I'm going to throw out most of them because I don't even read this stuff anymore. But I, I was feeling sad when I was doing that. And how old are you? I'm uh, 30. 30, okay. And what does it mean to you that these topics are not going to come back for you? Before, I mean, I don't know if it does now, but before it was it was really sad. I, was, I, I know I was really into them. I got a lot of enjoyment out of them. I felt a kind of really strong enthusiasm to learn them and uh, to be good in them, and, to, and, and I enjoyed them. I got a lot of enjoyment out of them. And I haven't recently, though. I felt sad. And Sorry, I when was the last time that you got enjoyment out of these subjects? Oh, it must have been like when I was seven, seven years ago or something like that. As far as physics goes, programming, it's, it's, it continued afterwards because I would help people. And I guess I would get uh, people would be happy that I helped them with it. And I would try to make things to impress people, I think. Right. So I would suggest, sure. I would suggest, and I, I understand this nostalgia. I think I've done a whole podcast on that. Um, I would suggest, my friend, that it is not the subjects themselves that moves you, but rather the relationships that you developed uh -huh. because of the subjects. And what you miss is the relationships, or rather what you miss is, the, is why you needed those relationships, right? So if you're genuinely interested in something, then that interest will likely continue, right? So I love music. Uh, I have since I was a little kid, and I continue to explore new kinds of music when I can, and that has sort of stayed with me. Now, there are other things that I was into when I was a kid, uh, like stamp collecting, which I have not uh, continued uh, because, uh, I don't know, sexual maturity or something. <laughs> it's more, more fun for doing other things. But um, <laughs> uh, so, so there are things that, that, you know, if you were very interested in these subjects, my guess would be that your interest in these subjects gave you relationships, gave you a community, gave you teachers, gave you mentors, gave you 
uh, a way to connect with people. And uh, when that did not continue to occur for you, um, then like when, when your pursuit of these subjects no longer gave you a way to connect to people, then you lost interest in the subjects. And when you uh, are going back and looking at these things and throwing them out, uh, I think, I'm guessing, uh, this would be my first guess, or it's all nonsense, but this is what I'm thinking, um, that you're thinking back to uh, a lonely time in your life, uh, a time when you did not have uh, a, a natural, organic, say, familial or friend-based connections. And so you had to have connections that were uh, founded upon uh, shared competencies or, or interests or abilities, uh, and in a sense then weren't quite organic or, or, or intimate in that sense, right? So, I mean, to take a, a sort of stereotypical example, you know, there are guys who, uh, you know, they, they get together because they like watching sports, right? You know, there's a Thanksgiving, uh, sports is on or the football game is on. And so they get together and they watch football and um, uh, they, they cheer and they drink and they make jokes and all that sort of stuff, right? They rib each other and diss the opposing team, opposing team and so on. And then if these people all get together and the TV is broken, the satellite is down, the game has been canceled, I don't know what, uh, Krakens have invaded uh, San Diego or whatever, then then I think they're going to feel kind of sadness or isolation, right? They're going to feel a little bit like, well, now what do we do? <laughs> all we can do is talk. And so I think that a shared uh, connections that are formed through a shared interest, uh, you know, not that my opinion means anything, but I don't think it's bad or anything, but I think when it's a substitute for something else, right? So when I was a teenager, um, uh, in my early teens to mid to teens, about 15 or so, I, I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons with friends. And, you know, I think about all those hours that we spent, uh, sometimes, you know, half the night or whatever, right? Um, we weren't talking about our lives or our thoughts or our feelings or our, what was actually occurring for us or our hopes or our dreams, the future. We were, you know, fighting imaginary enemies uh, with a Las Vegas-style gaming addiction, right? It's, uh, it's, it's gambling. Dungeons & Dragons is a form of gambling, as I've talked about. Yeah, yeah. And when I think about that, that stuff in hindsight, it, it wasn't bad. It was fun. It gave me um, – I was a dungeon master quite a bit, so it gave me good storytelling. It helped my verbal abilities, which were pretty good to begin with, but grew sharpened quite a bit. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it came out of a time – when we did not have the kind of connection where we could be together and interact without some third connector called Dungeons and Dragons, which wasn't actually a connector really at all. And uh, I think that there was a sadness in all of that. And um, I think that's uh, something that you may be thinking about is a lonelier time or a lonely time in your life when you weren't getting the kind of connection that you needed from those around you. And so you had connections based on shared interests and abilities which to me is not quite the same and in fact can, can be sort of an avoidant. Yeah, I think you're right. I feel a bit dissociated right now, but I was feeling sad when you first said that. I was myself desperate for the approval of teachers when I was younger. I did have actually a couple of teachers who were kind of nice to me when I was a kid and, you know, had profound effects upon my relationship with authority. Uh, I had a camp counselor that I literally stayed up until two or three in the morning chatting with um, when I was at uh, kind of unceremoniously dumped into summer camp by my mom. Uh, I had a teacher or two uh, who was, um, uh, you know, smart and, and curious and actually would share a few thoughts or even be remotely curious about what I was thinking. Um, 
that that kind of stuff, uh, you know, when you have as lonely and separate an existence as I had when I was a kid, that kind of stuff is, you know, uh, children are like cacti. You know, we can live on three drops of rainwater a year. I mean, it's a sad thing, but we can, right? And um, so I, I, that's where I would look is is where was I emotionally during that time? Uh, and and to, to put all of that stuff away is, uh, you know, <clears throat> is to let go of certain beliefs that you have about this stuff coming back for you and that may be to expose the real reason why that stuff was so important for you to begin with. I remember throwing out my Dungeons and Dragons books. I remember throwing That's out okay. old albums. I remember throwing out lots of stuff and it's uh, it's very sad because I think about all that time that I spent that I wasn't talking to people but rather, you know, staring <laughs> ghostly orcs in the face, right? Um, uh, that was a That was a lonely time and that was the best we could do. Uh, in in the culture that we were in. Ah, uh, okay. Thank you very much for. I think it will help. It it really clarified things for me. I hope so, and uh, I, uh, I I do sympathize and empathize with that. It's a it's a good thing to to clean things out. Um, I really think it's a good thing to clean things out because it does uh, get you in touch with your reasons for still having certain things and uh, for why it may be time to move on. So good for you. I think we had somebody else who wanted to jump in, and I'm happy to take another um, another call. Oh my goodness, we might be ending on time. Da, 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 da. Last call. Our last call. <clears throat> yes, Jeff. Oh, hi. Hello. 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 Hi. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Check, check. One, two. Uh, I can hear you. I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yes. Go ahead. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Sorry. About this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about a particular topic I've been thinking about it a lot um my i talked with you you know it was a it was a while back and uh you know we kind of talked briefly about uh my re- relationship with my mother but um there's another relationship or another pair of relationships that uh i'm uh, concerned with and, and i feel like it's you know a slightly different situation um and that is uh with my grandparents uh, and that would be my mother's uh parents and uh my the reason it's kind of an issue to me is because uh, for a long time in my life, uh, the most rational influence on me and my family were my grandparents. Now, my uh, my parents were Christians, and uh, they used to take me to church and stuff when I was a kid. And um, the whole time, my grandfather had... Uh, been an atheist you know he had left the church a long time ago and so every time we would visit there was always kind of a tension between him and my mother because he uh not only you know wasn't religious he actually just you know thinks religious religion is a pretty harmful thing and he would always kind of challenge me uh when i would say that i was a creationist or something like that you know and he just uh, he he always kind of uh was there uh he was very interested in philosophy he would read he would read uh a lot of existentialist philosophers to me uh, when I was young. He would always, uh, 
he would always kind of hone my skills when it came to questioning things. He always encouraged me to question things. And, and sorry, uh, just to interrupt, but uh, so I've sorry. always had a very open. Oh yeah, sorry. I just, I just wanted to mention that yes, even yes. more props to your granddad because uh, that was being an atheist in a time pre-internet, right? When being an atheist was even tougher. So. So kudos to him. But oh, so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, reason, the reason he originally did, I think, yeah, and uh, the, I think part of the main reason that that happened, uh, just as a brief history, was that he used to belong to a church, and uh, there, was a, there was like a black couple that wanted to join the church, and the church uh, wouldn't let them join. And uh, he was pretty offended by that. Uh, so he uh, – and he, he, he's not black, uh, you know, but he just – that was kind of an eye-opener to him, to the hypocrisy that was going on. And uh, he already, I think, was already questioning it. And <clears throat> and so, I mean, I'm, a, I'm obviously – I'm very much an atheist now, and uh, me and him have a great relationship with each other. And uh, what bothers me, I guess, is uh, – see, he – I haven't really talked to him. Uh, in person, at least uh, post FDR, and uh, he knew the he knew me uh, back during uh, the election when I was kind of like a uh, Ron Paul style libertarian, right? And uh, he he's a Democrat. He's a big time Democrat, and uh, <laughs> and he even though he didn't agree with me, he uh, enjoys debating with it. He enjoys debating me on it. He, he doesn't, uh, you know, he doesn't. He's not mad at me for having different views. Um, he does. He does tend to uh, be a tease about it, <laughs> but I mean, I tease him back, so I guess it's pretty fair. Um, but I mean, I I am a bit apprehensive, honestly, about uh, pushing it farther than uh, my previous libertarian leanings, because at least when I was libertarian that way, I still thought that. Uh, a government was good for certain things, and uh, and here's the big catch here: uh, he is a retired judge, so it's uh, I'm thinking, you know, like if I were to, I even though he's very open and he's in, he's very old now, he's uh, he's like 78 now, um, but even though he's very open-minded for his age and for uh, and and he's always enjoyed uh, any challenges that I bring to him. Uh, I I am a bit apprehensive about challenging his moral authority, uh, considering that he spent a lot of his life uh, in pretty pretty much uh, state jobs. You know, I mean, he was when he was younger, he was uh, in the military, uh, stationed in in Japan during the Korean War, and he, uh, he later, you know, he went to law school and later became a judge. Well, uh, I don't think he was, but I think at the time it was pretty common that most people joined the military. And uh, the main reason he did was because he didn't come from a really a rich family. He came from like a really small town farmer in rural Indiana. So he uh, didn't have a lot of money for college, and it was a way to pay for school. So that was the main reason. He wasn't in combat. Um, but uh, you know he was you know definitely part of the military and stuff, and I don't know, I'm just I'm just I'm trying to imagine what that conversation is going to be like because I'm going to go see him again, and I I have to have that conversation with him. I have to let him know why uh, why do you have now. to have that conversation? Um, and and the thing is, he's well because I I value the relationship I have with him, and I don't want to just I, I, it would be. 
I, I, I guess it would feel unfair for me to uh, cut to cut him off when I've had such. I mean, which you know, until just I've understood more. I mean, it, I had always enjoyed my time with him. I always enjoyed our relationship, and uh, I feel like this is going to be a tense issue uh, to bring up. Well, the first thing I would say is that you don't have to have the conversation with him because philosophy is about choice, right? Right, but you can choose. I can choose to have the conversation. (laughs) I want to. I mean, I want to keep it. I want to keep. And sorry to interrupt, but the other thing that I would say is that there are not there aren't only two choices, which is to confront him on the ethical realities of his life um, or to separate. Uh, I don't think that those are the only two choices. I think that that's kind of being in a corner. Okay, okay, but I, but I also I don't really want to... I mean, I, here's the thing. We always have discussions. When, when I meet him, part of our relationship is that we always discuss the current political climate and we discuss uh, what's going on in the news. We discuss... Uh, all these things, and we we usually debate ethics and things like that, and it's going to come up. I mean, that's just the way that our relationship is. It will come up, and I don't think you know. I I don't think he will. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what he'll do. I don't know. Well, can I tell you what I think um, will happen? Just so that I'm just. Uh... What do you? Yeah. What would you? What, what do you think? Or if you want to role play or something. <laughs> well, let, let me let me just try telling you what I what I think will happen, and um, uh, I can tell you my thoughts about what I think will happen. But okay. but this is this is how uh, I think it's it's going to go. Look, your uh, your grandfather was a judge. What that means is that he passed sentences and threw people into jail for non-payment of taxes for. Right. Um, Drug possession, right? No, no harm, no foul, no right, and uh, for probably about a thousand out of the things that in a free society would in no way, shape, or form be crimes, right? Now, I don't know, right? Yeah, and, and let, let me let me just finish, he, and then he then necessarily... let me. You know, I I get that he thinks these things are crimes and so on, right? But but here's the thing, I can't I can't put myself into the mindset of somebody who gained, obviously, a lot of prestige and power from being a judge, if he were to look back and see that he himself was a key part of putting innocent people, of initiating the use of force against lots and lots of innocent people, I'm sure that there were some guilty people, but lots and lots of innocent people, of of causing them to lose their freedoms, to be put into jails, uh, to... um, to be beaten up and, and possibly raped and, and to have their lives shattered and destroyed by the force of his gavel. You know, I've often thought about how if you and I'm not putting your 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 a granddad into this category, I'm just sort of telling you these thoughts that I've had that, that popped into my head. You know, it's it's fairly common, unfortunately, for the police to try and get criminals into jail or get people into jail to meet their numbers. Right, and they'll manufacture evidence, and they'll false uh, testify, and so on. That's why you never want to get dragged into the legal system because then you're into a true Alice in Wonderland through hell, right? And so it's often struck me like, what kind of freakazoid 
of a weirdo human being do you have to be where you know that you've lied to get people into jail, to hit your numbers, to get promoted? And those people are rotting in cells, and you know that you've manufactured. Now, of course, you probably tell yourself, well, they were guilty. We just had to bend a few rules to make sure they were put behind bars or whatever, right? But to to live with the knowledge yeah. that people are in jail because of your actions, and those people are, have not actually initiated the use of force or fraud against anyone, I can't imagine if that lid were to be opened, even as a possibility, in your grandfather's mind, uh, I can tell you that uh, th- this would go... Uh, very likely, enormously badly, explosively badly. Yeah, that's what, right. That's what. That's exactly. That's uh, and he, and he's not. And here's the thing: like, uh, if you can just imagine. I mean, again, uh, this is my mother's father. Uh, a lot of the uh, issues that my mom has with her own personality are effects of his parenting. And uh, so now, now he was a much more enlightened and educated man by the time that I was born, by the time I came around. But, uh, you, you know, mean that he, he was a harsh parent uh, to your mother? Got divorced when my mom was you know, yeah, yeah, I'm sure he was. I mean, I wasn't there, obviously, but uh, I understand that he probably was. I mean, he's just, he's the judge, right? He's the uh, authority, right? He's uh, the big man. So, uh, it's often struck and, me and that the, the, the people that we hand over violence like, to wanna... in our society, the people we hand over violence to in our society should obviously be the most noble and the most moral people around, obviously, because we're giving them such enormous power. And so they should really be the best parents around and they should be the most gentle right. and kind and wise and considerate people around and they should treat their children uh, as the beautiful treasures that they are. But when you look at prison guards and cops and soldiers and judges – uh, the quality of parenting tends to be universally extremely poor, even relative to to the average. And this is just another example of how we give guns to those who are the most traumatized, right. not to those who are the wisest, which is why society tends to get worse. But sorry, go on. Well, and and I do want to say, like, in, in all fairness to him, uh, if I were to be convicted of something, uh, he would be – if I had to have a judge, I mean, he would be one that I would want. I mean, in all fairness, like, for example, you, you mentioned things like he's put people in jail for drug laws. Well, he – doesn't agree with drug laws. Now, I guess he could just override using his authority all the time. But you know, the way he saw it, the way he always explained to me was, well, when you become a lawyer or when you become a judge and you get used to that job, you uh, you get kind of that occupational hazard where you trust the system, right? So he's not. Uh, even though he doesn't agree that it's good to put people in jail for smoking a plant. Uh, he has to carry it out because that's the oath he takes under the law, right? And he is uh, uh, expected to uphold the law, and he doesn't make the laws, right? He uh, yeah, but he can quit, them, so. right? I mean, I, uh, I think that's a bullshit excuse, frankly. I mean, I you yeah. know, all do that's a bullshit. Oh, well, they told me to. Come on. I mean, that's a ridiculous excuse for an educated man. Well, they told me that I had to put people in jail, so I guess I have to put people in jail. I mean, that's pretty pathetic. I mean, I would expect a judge to come up with something better than that. Uh, that's pretty sad because, of course, that's the Nazi argument. Hitler had his peace, his soldiers take an oath to serve the fatherland as well. I mean, that's that's really a pretty pitiful defense uh, around participation in such a system. Um, but nonetheless, uh, go on. Right. Well, and I, I, I don't know. I guess I find it hard to. Uh, 
and I, I don't know. It's uh, I, I'm having trouble uh, mixing my feelings about this and what because every time I'm thinking about what I want to say, like the logic kind of pops into my head, and I go, eh, I don't really want to say that. Uh, but I don't know. I'll just say it. Uh, you know, isn't there something I can't I kind of grandfather him, uh, so to speak? Because <laughs> it's like even though. Uh, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, know, I know morality tends to be harsh. Like, you know, if you miss the test and ignorance is no excuse. But uh, it, I, given the time that he worked, that he lived in, it's, I mean, it, you know, I, I don't know. No, no, listen, listen, I understand. I, I'm going to give you my he, advice. He has taught me a lot. Yeah. I understand. And I look, I really appreciate that this is a very difficult situation. There's lots that you respect about the guy. There's lots of value that he brought to you. And there are some moral issues that you have with him. So uh, I'm going to tell you what uh, uh, what I would do in your situation. Um, no one can tell you what to do, as I always say, right? This is your choice. But I can tell you what I would do. I would not debate philosophy with my grandfather. Because I think what's really troubling you is not the abstract arguments, but it is the emotions. It's the feelings. Right. So I think what is most troubling to you is 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 the fear, is the anxiety, is the ambivalence that you have towards a man who brought some value, some great value to you in terms of his rational thinking in some areas. But and perhaps, you know, through no massive fault of his own, because, as you say, it's the times and he may have never been exposed to alternative ideas. And, you know, most people can't reinvent philosophy from the ground up. So we can have, I think, some sympathy for this. Uh, I don't have sympathy for the because I made a promise and they told me to and it's the law argument because even he would know that that's a very weak argument because he's an educated man in fact it's a very corrupt argument but uh so uh, but I think I think what is really uh, important in your relationship right relationships with people in my opinion are not about finely woven intellectual arguments uh, relationships with people about are about opening your heart and opening your heart in my opinion, in this situation, would be going to your grandfather and saying something like, I'm really terrified to have this conversation. There's a huge amount of value that you've brought to me. I feel really grateful and positive and love you for the good things that you brought to me. Um, I'm going on an evolution intellectually and philosophy, uh, philosophically that is causing me great anxiety with relationship to you because it's critical of some of the things that you've done in your life, which is not to say that I feel that you're a bad guy because you had time and circumstances, right. blah, blah, blah. But I'm really scared to bring this up. I, I really value our relationship. I'm afraid that my philosophical leanings are going to cause huge problems in our relationship. I don't want to lose it. But at the same time, I feel like I can't keep silent because we're always having these discussions. So I'm really uh, in a quandary. And the quandary is not philosophical. Well, that's quandary, that's exactly the okay. thought. Yeah, that's exactly – that is basically the script of what I figured the conversation would, would begin with. And uh, I, I don't see that. I don't see it. In, I don't – here's the thing. I don't see it. I don't see how he would just like, oh, I never thought about it that way. You know, wait, wait. No, like, no, wow, no. But that's, that's the intellectual really, argument. Uh, that's really good. No. You sure are. Don't, uh, don't get drawn <laughs> into the intellectual arguments about that. In my opinion, I would not get drawn into that, right? So, because the issue that you fundamentally have is not – he's not a judge now, right? So that's all done. Uh, what does it particularly matter? if well, he's, he's retired, yeah. Yeah, yeah if he's he changes retired. his mind right now, 
I mean, so what? I mean, I hate to say it. This is to me, there's somewhat of an argument of effect from effect here. You know, he's somebody who's massively invested into the existing matrix, right? Into the existing status paradigm. Uh, he's been that way his whole life, his whole career. Right, but he's around the infliction of state power. Yeah. You know, like this is why I don't run around in hospital deathbeds saying, you all need to change your minds, right? There is no God and the state is bad. It's like they're three minutes from dying. Give them their right. – and like, I know he's 70. He's not three minutes from dying or whatever, right? But uh, there is to me in terms of um, right. no. uh, investment, uh, return on investment, so to speak. Well, that's my point about grandfather. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's my point about grandfathering him. You know, I'd rather not like, ah, you know, it's like too bad for you that I had to get involved in this kind of conversation by the time you were nearing, uh, nearing the end of your life. And, uh, you know, we had this great relationship with your grandson. And now because of my principles, I'm just going to, uh, you know, make our relationship that much harder, much harder. And, uh, I, I, that's not very exciting. Yeah, this guy me. was not abusive. What's you? He gave great values. He stimulated your thinking. And no, of course, for me. many years, no. you agreed with him, right? That about the necessity for a state that you, you disagreed about the extent, but you yeah. agreed with the, the, um, the basis of, so, uh, no, so I, I used to want to follow in his footsteps. I used right, to, right. I so, used to want to be a lawyer and be a judge. I used to want to do the same thing. <laughs> right, so you could pull out the thermonuclear against me argument, you could do all of this, and I can almost guarantee you that you will end up with a big smoking crater where your relationship with your grandfather would be, because I think that for him to look back upon that, which he is the most proud of, and say that this in many ways was shameful uh, and dishonorable, although we can understand the, the lack of exposure to alternate information, um, it's not like the exposed judges to a lot of anarchist literature for obvious reasons. Right. So, um, uh, so, so this is what, what I would say. Right. And if, if you keep, if he keeps coming up with these arguments about politics, uh, uh, to me, it's, you know, perfectly valid and an honest thing to say, uh, is to say, I think that, I know that, uh, I'm no longer uh, a libertarian. Uh, I have gone, uh, to, to a, a different, uh, place when it comes to, to politics. Um, I think that we're not going to see eye to eye on this. Uh, there's a huge amount that I can talk about with you that I feel uh, is enjoyable and positive and so on. News, weather, atheism, you know, whatever it is, uh, family matters, uh, history, you know, the past, the future, and so on. Right. There's a lot that we can have that's of great value. Um, there's a lot that we can have conflict about. And I would really like to focus on that which has great value uh, in, in my relationship with you. I think that if we go down this route of... Uh, uh, of politics uh, further, it's going to cause uh, irrevocable uh, harm to our relationship, which I don't want, because there's a, a lot that's good in our relationship. So uh, I would prefer it if we could, you know, stay clear of the politics and focus really on the stuff where there's agreement and, and shared values and so on. Uh, I, you know, if you value the relationship, and it sure sounds like you do, and I, I really appreciate you bringing this up, then to me, <clears throat> there's no such thing as a bad decision as long as it's conscious. Right. There's no such thing as a bad decision. I mean, when you're not initiating force of fraud, which, of course, you're not. Right. But there's no such thing as a bad decision. You can choose to fence off a certain aspect of a relationship with people. I mean, we do it all the time. I don't I mean, I know my grocer is not an anarchist. I'm still going to buy a head of lettuce. Right. So we can we can fence right. off. Certain oh, aspects you of our have to if you want to interact at all. <laughs> as long as it's conscious, as long as you know that you're doing it, it's not repression if you're aware that you're doing it. 
and you say, well, okay, so I'm going to go see my granddad. We're not going to agree on this stuff, so I, I don't have to talk about it with him. That's not the it's not the end of the world. I'm, I mean, I I don't have to agree with everyone about everything, and there's no relationship where everyone agrees on on everything, right? <laughs> Even I don't agree with myself on everything from day to day. So there's no relationship like that. So I would say. As long as you're conscious of making some restrictions in your relationship, you then don't even have to bring it up with him. If you feel that that is going to be like if he's not a guy who talks about feelings at all and from his generation, it probably wouldn't be number one on his list of topics, then you can he's you not. Can say, well, I'm just going to let it yeah. roll off my back. Yeah, I'm that's that's, that's not an interesting aspect of this. Sorry, go ahead. Now, see, my uh, my grandmother, uh, the woman he's married to, and it's actually it's a it's his I guess you call her my step grandmother because my mom's stepmom. Uh, she's a psychologist, and she is uh, constantly uh, to the uh, really to the irritation of people like my mother. She's constantly trying to get the family to uh, work out their issues. Uh, you know, I've been through uh, some pretty intense interventions uh between like my mother and my grandfather where they like really let it out on each other uh and things like that you know? and uh my my grandmother is uh much younger she's also been very close to me she's also been uh pretty much uh educating me on philosophy and psychology ever since i was very young uh also a very in, you know, very much of an impactful uh, relationship in my life and my family, and uh, uh, she was always critical of uh, my family situation with my parents uh, for various reasons. But uh, uh, I, I do think that it would be. Here's the thing: like, uh, she really, really loves me and appreciates me, and really wants to have a really uh, open relationship with me and she wants to see the real me. I mean, she wants to know all the time. She's always inquiring, wanting to know, uh, what, what, what's going on with me, what I'm all about, uh, what I believe, what my values are, all these things. So even though with someone like my grandfather, it's a little easier. And the way I was actually thinking about approaching, approaching it, if I was going to talk to him about it was to talk to her first and be like, look, uh, there's something I'd, I'd really like to be open with you both about, but I, I really, especially don't think grandpa is going to like it. You know? And, uh, uh, and I and I also I'm with her. I I don't see how I can just considering the amount of honesty I've had with her uh, in our relationship. I don't see how I could choose to consciously not let her in on it somehow. Uh, I just feel like that would come out. I mean, I generally generally if somebody's around me long enough, if somebody knows me long enough, then they pretty much get what I'm all about eventually. I mean, if 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 they're the person if they're the kind of person that I'm actually allowing myself to be around uh in a, on a regular basis, they're going to start hearing my thoughts on things and uh that's that's kind of like my my test i don't know litmus test not not the right word not the right metaphor but uh my test for who's going to stick around is how much uh they can take as far as uh what i'm saying and uh you know my the friendships that i value the most the friendships that have stuck with me are the ones where i'm able to talk about things that i like like for example on freedom and radio or i get to talk about my values those are the relationships that stick and uh the ones that can't get there that can't go there with me uh i tend to not call them 
as much. I tend to ignore them more, and uh, and see that's and I and I have that fear of of them being sort of beyond the pale, uh, being too old, too too propagandized, too much watching CNN, too too entrenched in in loving you know the president or whatever it is. You know, it just I I don't see with certain people that are older, the older people um, that I have relationships with. It just it's very tough to see that. Uh, working out that way and uh and that's that's frightening for me because i've uh i i've never i'm i guess i've never been at a point in my thinking where i thought that it was going to damage my relationship with somebody that uh that usually was understanding to pretty much anything i brought to them and it's tough to think that you know i'm a part of some kind of uh, intellectual change in the species that is so significantly uh destructive to old relationships it's uh it's pretty it's pretty heavy it is heavy uh and that's why philosophy comes with a massive warning label right uh yeah will, will cause massive uh, explosions in your way of being uh, and right. uh, i uh, i really sympathize with that i've always tried to be upfront with uh, that uh, in, with, with, with people. Uh, and it is, it is a great challenge. So, um, I, and I really, I got to tell you, I, I hugely respect, uh, the way that you're working through this stuff. Uh, it is really tough and, um, uh, it is in many ways, it's the toughest stuff. So, um, I really do respect that. Um, there are choices in your relationships. Uh, if there are values that you have that you share, um, as long as you're conscious of that, uh, you can, at least in my, my opinion, you can, uh, uh, steer clear of stuff that's just contentious for no point. Uh, without change, without growth, and uh, so I would uh, uh, I would uh, be honest as honest as I can be. Uh, recognize that there is going to be explosions if you push the against me argument with a status judge. I mean that's just right. that's just going to hit the roof, right? So you uh, yeah, that. You don't have to do one or the other. You you can do whatever you want. It's obviously a positive relationship. It's not abusive. Uh, there are differences oh. in values, and of course, I okay. think it's on your side. But, uh, okay, I well, I have this question now. It, knowing now, I'm I'm pretty sure that that conversation would not work out to uh, us just you know having a nice agreement or a nice discussion. Uh, so I'm wondering, like, because because I'm tempted to because I have this like uh, urge when I'm when I'm close to somebody, and if somebody's you know if they're just if i'm constantly having discussions with them and i'm just like biting my tongue you know like wanting to really just lay it out and it's uh i mean would that be uh kind of self-destructive of me to actually do that no going into it knowing that it's not going to work out wouldn't that be a bit self-destructive if i were to actually uh, i mean like why would i have that urge why would i have that urge to to like lash back out, right? Like to fight back uh, with that. I mean, uh, th- that's well, because you get frustrated. I mean, this is natural. It's a natural feeling, right? You get frustrated listening to people stew status bullshit propaganda, right? Hour after you know, hour after hour. It's frustrating and it's enraging at times. There's no question. There's no question. That's a natural and healthy, I would say, reaction to it. Now, what you choose to do with it is up to you. Uh, I don't mind lambasting somebody. Uh, if there's an audience, right? I mean, I'll have a debate. You know, I had one with, I think, Jan Helfeld, uh, where I went into him fairly hard, particularly in the after show, um, because there's an audience and I don't want to, uh, appear to be, um, you know, anything other than I am, which is very much committed to, to reason and evidence. 
and uh, and courage in the face of what I consider to be some pretty nasty arguments about driving me into the sea with tanks. So uh, I, I think there's an audience or a third party who can see a sort of moral passion in what it is that you're doing. I think that's great. Uh, I was um, I had the debate with Michael Badnarik uh, at, at Drexel uh, last year where uh, I was uncompromising. I, I like Michael a lot more than I like Jan, obviously. Um, right. I was uncompromising in attacking the position, though not the person. And uh, to me, there's an audience there. If it's one on one and there's nobody to see, then to me that's sort of pointless. You know, that's uh, you know that's like you know punching one of those bouncy clowns, uh, inflatable clowns, and calling it a boxing match. There's sort of really no. No point to that. I think that would be a waste of time. But yeah, if there are other people, then I think lambasting somebody who's full of nonsense uh, is uh, is uh, is fine. It's offensive nonsense, right? I think that's perfectly fine. But it's a natural feeling. I mean, to to be frustrated with uh, people plugged into the uh, bullshit matrix uh, and and the fact that they're also often self righteous and superior and yeah, that's right. annoying. You know that you're surrounded right. by people who are incompetent in their thinking and incompetent people always feel superior to everyone else, right? Only through competence comes humility. And so, yeah, it's frustrating to be lectured to by idiots who are wrong. Uh, it's, uh, it, you know, I mean, just take a look at any of the YouTube comments below any of my videos. I mean, I'm no, sorry, no. but yeah. you have a basic understanding of history and, and you don't know philosophy and you think, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you just pump us away and go on with your right. life and I'll actually try and get some shit done in the world, right? So, yeah, I can uh, I can understand it. And another another question I have for you. I got a short one because I do have to go yeah. and eat. We're already okay. Open. Okay, one one more thing. Okay, um, the the problem of arrogance. I don't know if uh, now. What do you think of that accusation? Now, I I do know you've heard. Of, of course, it's not an argument, right? It's usually like kind of an ad hominem, just sort of like you're arrogant, you know. But um, what would you say arrogance is, and uh, what would you say? Is the problem with it if you know, or, or if like because I've gotten that uh, accusation oh, yeah. a lot. I think we all have. I, I would say, to me, philosophically speaking, arrogance is the claim uh, for knowledge or abilities that directly contradicts reality and evidence. Right. That that to me would be would be arrogant because arrogance is is placing opinion above reality. Right. It's turning your opinions into a kind of god and uh, and placing them above reality. So, uh, for instance, I mean, atheists are often called uh, arrogant, which is insane, because yeah. the, the Bible is full of all this contradictory stuff. Just to pick on the Bible, it could be any book, right? Religious book. The yeah. Bible is full of all this contradictory stuff, right? And you talk to some religious person, right? And you say, uh, you know, the Bible says that atheists should be put to death, right? Uh, that's offensive to me, right? That you have a book like the KKK manual for hanging blacks is offensive to black people. And the Bible is fucking offensive to atheists because it says that we should right. be put to death. So excuse me for not being too friendly to your fucking genocidal book that has been put into practice yeah. more times than I can <laughs> count around killing me and my brethren. So, uh, so, uh, but then of course the, the, the religious person will say, well, that's not supposed to be taken literally. Right. So, so in other words, the, 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 the religious person is claiming to know what God means. Right. Right. So, so I know, see, God wrote the Bible. So God wrote that atheists should be put to death, but he also said, turn the other cheek. And I know which one God really meant. In other words, I'm smarter than God. That to me is unbelievably arrogant. To know what God meant, to know what he really was all about, what parts should be taken literally, what parts should be taken metaphorically, what parts are figurative, what parts are, are commandments, right? 
Mm-hmm. What and they they even say, well, there's stuff in there that's from God, and there's stuff in there that comes in through man and translations and this and that. In other words, they claim to know exactly what God really meant, but was unable to coherently express in the Bible. They know what God really means. Now, <laughs> my God, it, it's one thing to say I'm omniscient and I know everything, but it's another thing to say I know better than the person who's omniscient and knows everything. I know better than God. <laughs> Because God got all confused with the Bible. See, but I can set him straight. I know what he really meant. So it's saying that I'm omniscient about the guy who's omniscient but made mistakes. It's, it's actually saying that you're smarter than God to, to cherry pick from the Bible. And that to me is mind-blowingly arrogant. In, in the realm of statism, of course, it's, it's the same nonsense, right? It's saying that, that I know that there are people who can virtuously initiate the use of force and, and, and force people to do what they want, and it's a good thing. I mean, that to me is unbelievably arrogant. I mean, if I picked up a gun and said, you all better do what I say or I'm going to shoot you, that would be considered insane, narcissistic, arrogant, destructive, right? Of course, right? But somehow when you translate that into the state and and the monopoly of force that the government represents, suddenly that's not arrogant at all, right? That's something else. And so to me, religiosity and, and statism are both unbelievably arrogant and imposing uh, philosophies. And of course, because they're so completely the opposite of reality, they're immune to testability, right? Uh, right. Thinking, right. you know, like uh, they, there was a 60 minutes, right? The, uh, it was on the other, the other week where <clears throat> this guy was selling bogus cures for, I can't remember, it was multiple sclerosis and, and, uh, uh I don't know. Okay. So these weird illnesses, right? So he was selling these cures. Uh, these two, two guys were selling cures. They take $40,000 or $100,000 and they would, oh, we're going to inject stem cells and make you all better. And there was no proof for any of that, right? There was no proof for it. And what they did was nonsense. And so 60 Minutes corners these guys and starts to get an investigation because you see, they're taking money to cure people of real ailments when their cure doesn't in fact work, right? And I yeah. thought, you fucking cowards. You fucking cowards. Why aren't you sitting down with a priest? Why aren't you sitting down with a priest? At least these people's illnesses is fucking real. The cure's bullshit, but at least the illnesses are real. Original sin isn't even a real illness, and you're selling a cure to an illness that doesn't even exist? You're selling something called heaven, which doesn't even exist? (laughs) I mean, come on. How cowardly do you have to be to corner these two loser, fraudster (laughs) assholes who are making a couple of hundred K a year? And ignore the fucking Vatican sitting on $30 billion? I mean, come on! How ridiculously cowardly can you be? I mean, you can't sell sugar water over the internet and claims it cures cancer. But you can sell a confessional booth and you can sell holy water that rids you of imaginary sin because (laughs) a talking snake convinced a rib woman to make Adam eat an apple 6,000 years ago in a place that never existed, that's all perfectly legal. Not only is it legal and you'll never be prosecuted for fraud, you'll get fucking tax breaks. and (laughs) You'll be a charity. I mean, that's just how crazy it all is, right? But that that would be my sort of one answer to the the issue of uh, of arrogance. Okay. Well, I... And but see, I I agree with that, and and that's the thing is that I don't ever, uh, I don't ever feel like, for example, like when I'm listening to you, I don't ever think, oh man, he's being so arrogant. Like I I I don't like, and and people that uh, that I think are 
are making rational arguments, uh, I don't ever get that feeling. But uh, I always, in my experience, you know, people that are not rational love to throw that word out. They love to uh, break you down with that word, and it's a. Well, it's, it's not an argument, right? Right, I mean, and, and arrogance is, is not I, an argument, right? It's like saying, "Well, you're too tan for me to believe what you're saying." Yeah. <laughs> oh, shut up! You can't think, so stop talking. Stop making noise with your breathing hole because it's yeah. just—it it makes the same sound in my brain as pulling a dead squid's tentacle off a fucking window. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is—I've been meaning to put together a list of nonsense, non-arguments that I continually get. Like, well, you're arrogant. Yeah. Well, you're just brain wrong. But I'm sorry, you've misinterpreted things with no shred of evidence or argument in it whatsoever. Right. Right. I mean, it's embarrassing. It's like all you're doing is making, you know, it's like it's like watching a uh, a whale surface and go through its blowhole. That's what most people's communication to me is about ideas, not you or my listeners or whatever. Yeah. Right. Regulars. But and I, they're just making I noise and you're, you're just typing with your monkey paws and making noise with your monkey breathing hole. It's cute, but it means nothing. <laughs> right. That arrogant right. is one of those words. It's just oh, he's arrogant, you know, or he's so full of himself or it's, you know, it, it, there's no argument behind any of it. It's just uh it's just a confession that he scares me and I'm going to throw a magic spell called arrogance at him, hoping that it will stop him <laughs> from making me anxious, right? But it's nonsense, right? And I, I also think it has a particular uh, uh, kind of ingrained effect on me because that was, uh, that was a common uh, sort of breakdown that my mother used to give to me when I was young. Uh, you know, like if she did something that I thought was – uh, irrational or something that I thought was unfair or that I, I could clearly see was was hypocritical uh, and I would bring it up you know because I was a pretty uh, I mean I would kind of I would fight back as a kid I, I was not I wasn't really like a hider when it came to those things I mean I kind of realized early on that I could out debate her so what I would do is I would I would debate her on these things and uh, when she couldn't continue with the debate in a rational sense she'd always pull out all the stops right she'd pull out the big guns right like you're arrogant uh you know, I'm the boss. I'm, it's, I'm, I'm right because I'm just in charge, and that's just how it is. Or, you know, and and that was always that was just that was always the insult. It was always something like it was always, uh, oh, you just think you just think the you just think you know everything. Oh, you just you. think oh, you're yeah. young. You, you, you're young. You'll understand this when you get older. You'll really understand yeah, that. You, I can't I explain it, it to you time. now. Experience is going to teach you otherwise. Get off your high horse. Stop being so heavy-handed. Stop being so arrogant. Stop. This is all embarrassing nonsense. It's just monkey blowhole nonsense, right? I mean, it's it's basically it's like it's like watching a cat sneeze and thinking he's made an argument. It's embarrassing. And and what it is psychologically, right, is, is very simple. It's that what's happening is that when you bring reason and evidence to people who are full of bullshit opinions. They begin to self-attack because they begin to see that they're nothing more than those inflated fart-based bubble fish, you know, that you see sort of puffing up in Finding Nemo, right? right. And so they begin to see themselves and there's a self-attack. There's a self-criticism that occurs because they're fundamentally false and making up nonsense arguments and, and pretending to have knowledge when they in fact have only gasbaggery, culturally-based nonsense opinions. And so they begin to self-attack. And what happens is they, they, the hot potato lands on them, like a red hot potato, a red hot rock lands on them. And because they're so wonderfully courageous and noble and heroic, what they do is they throw it at you, right? And yeah. because they're starting to self-attack, what they do is they try and throw the self-attack on you. So when people say to me, oh, Steph, you're so arrogant or you're so this or you're so that, I know that they're attacking themselves. They don't have the courage to deal with it. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to get me to attack myself, which is a completely useless strategy. If I'm not going to attack myself, they're just making nonsense noises. And that, of course, is a lot of what, what occurs, right? And it just, 
it's kind of pitiful uh, in a way. Uh, it is kind of pitiful in a way. And I don't mean this about your mom. I'm just talking about my sort of experience. Oh, yeah, I understand. It's, yeah. it's pitiful in a way. It is a confession of falsehood, of impotence, of manipulation, of helplessness. And it goes all the way back to, of course, truly tragic cultural programming in childhood and the death of the true self. So uh, to me, I just view it as... Um, you know, like there are those horror movies where somebody dies and then, you know, the hand comes up, you know, on the on the uh, autopsy table because there's some nerve ending that's getting twitched or whatever. Right. But it's not it's not they're not alive. They're just making movement. Right. And that's sort of what the brain does when people come up with those kind of arguments. There's no the brain dead, but there's a reflex action that's coming out called uh, ad hominem bullshit. Right. Which is, you know, it's just like yeah. watching a corpse throw up. It's not indication of life, but rather a final expiration. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it, it is just, uh, it is, it is quite sad to me that, uh, that's not more commonly understood that that's not just a part of general social interaction i mean i was at a i was at a social event last night uh, i hadn't been out in a while so i just went to a party and uh i just it, it, it sometimes it is tough for me to uh carry on a conversation very long when it's always just i don't know how to describe it uh when it's not going anywhere when it's not getting to the root of anything when it's uh uh. You will uh, you will have some uncomfortable social situations. You may lose some friends. Uh, you may have people look at you funny. Uh, you may get uh, uh, difficult and unpleasant uh, emails. Uh, you may even <laughs> occasionally get down on yourself. Uh, you may feel cursed with a third eye that sees the truth that seems to turn the other two eyes off, and somehow that's all you can see. It's like putting the, <laughs> the magic ring on in Lord of the Rings, right? And you may experience all of these uh, upsets, and you may experience all these difficulties. And the only consolation that I can offer you is that you will actually have a gloriously happy life. Uh, and it's the only <laughs> way to get. That's the only consolation that I can offer you is that, yeah, people will look right. at you and, and people will bitch at you and people will try and bring you down and, you know, right. broken, broken, uh, broken brain reaction robots will lash out at you with their imaginary whips, which won't ever hit you because it's all in their heads. And the only, the only consolation to any of that is that you live a great fucking meaningful life full of love, passion, devotion, and excitement. That is the only consolation that I can offer for that. I think it's a pretty good deal. Uh, in fact, I don't think there's a better deal on the planet. But uh, everybody, of course, has the um, has their own values. But I think you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I, and I already and I already have experienced that. I mean, I've already I already know that's true. Uh, I've uh, my own life uh, since being more involved in the conversation uh has taken a lot of positive turns uh you know i mean i'm uh, self-employed now i make a lot of money doing my new, my new business uh before that i was just sort of like sitting in my room trolling the internet all day uh and i was always on the edge uh this conversation really kind of took – I mean I was already pretty much mostly there. I was just looking for a way to formulate it all into words and organize it. And uh, yeah, I already – even when I was just like 14, 15, I was even – because that was when I kind of started becoming more of an atheist. And, I, and along with that, I was questioning everything. I wasn't just questioning God. I was also questioning uh, uh, the whole concept of having anybody in charge of you without rational – without a rational reason to be in charge of you. Uh, for a long and if they time. have rational reasons, they're actually not in charge of you, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's uh, I've chosen. I've given them that authority or something. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So. Uh, well, listen. I'm going to have to stop because 
Yes. <laughs> so uh, we're way over, but uh, I really do appreciate right. bringing this up. It's a, it's a great topic. Yeah. And uh, talk I wish to you, you the best of luck. If you get a chance, you do drop a line and let me know how it goes. And I, I hope that uh, I hope that your grandfather uh, and you were able to work out some amicable, um, uh, even with some areas that, that you don't go, some amicable way of, of moving forward. And, and do let me know what happens. All right. Wonderful. Thanks, Steph. Thanks, man. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. Thank you for uh, joining the conversation. And uh, I look forward to, to seeing everybody. So far, the barbecue is remaining in, in September, uh, Labor Day uh, weekend. But uh, and that may change, but I don't think so. Uh, so uh, I hope to see everyone there. And I may be going down to Porkfest, so I hope to see you there as well. And thank you, everybody, so much for all of your support. This is a fantastic, fantastic place to be. And I wish you the very best this week.